Hi, and welcome to episode 29 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me from awardsdaily.com. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Steven Soderbergh's epic speech, wherein I think he kind of, you know, sent a loud clap through the film community, both critics and hopefully the actual industry, but whoever knows. And then we're going to talk about 1977 when Annie Hall um, actually beat Star Wars for Best Picture. Um, It was also up against the Goodbye Girl, Julia, and The Turning Point, but most Oscar fans remember it as a smackdown between Annie Hall and Star Wars, and a lot of internet people come down on the side of Star Wars, Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. So should we start with Mr. Soderbergh? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So Steven Soderbergh was at a, um, uh, he, he recently gave a speech called The State of Cinema at the San Francisco International Film Festival, right? Yep. Is that where it was? And at first when they, when his speech, when word got out that he had made the speech, um, there wasn't a lot of information because he had asked for no, no taping and no video. Uh, and so we just had, you know, bits and pieces here that, that anybody who happened to remember what he said spit out. And so no one really quite got what he was saying. They were, you know, oh, if he had a half a billion dollars, he would take in these great filmmakers and he would just tell them to go make some movies. That was the first message that I got. But then later um, it started to trickle out. First the transcript came out and then the actual video was released. So now we've all gotten to see... Steven Soderbergh's speech. I think that was smart of him, or smart of whoever was organizing the event, to to be sure that they probably knew that this was going, was going to be an important speech and that people were going to be disseminating it, spreading it, and sharing it. And they wanted to make sure that there was an accurate, complete, clear copy of it instead of something bootleg. And they wanted to make they they realized that it was important, and they wanted to make sure that they they got it out there in the right format. So that it could be, because it is a really, the, the, the video is great. I mean, it's really professional. So it wasn't as if they didn't want it recorded. They just didn't want it recorded by amateurs. Hmm. Maybe. So does anybody want to hmm. sum up the speech? He's kind of all over the place, but it's kind of a doom and gloom scenario about the state of cinema, as he calls it. He he, he makes a distinction between movies and cinema, and cinema is something where it's art-driven and there's an artist challenging themselves and the audience, and movies are more more escapism. And he comes right out and says that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with escapism, but he fears for the for the status of, of cinema. And it's interesting because it, it sort of ties into what we've been talking about for the last 10 weeks or so as we've been going down the 70s and we sort of see the end of this golden era coming. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself and getting onto our other topic. I don't want to But that's okay. That's, track. that's why we wanted to talk about his speech in relation to 1977 because 1976 and 77 in the Oscars and in Hollywood does seem like a turning point to us. And Soderbergh is, seeing, is saying that he sees a turning point in uh, uh, the tide turning against uh, artists and, uh, and filmmakers uh, now. And But at the same time, people were saying that in 1977 and 78 too. And it's not as if great movies stopped being made just because – uh, Star Wars and and superhero movies became predominant. It does that didn't stop um, 
filmmakers from making great movies. I think he's, uh, I think his doom and gloom is maybe a little bit misplaced. We've heard this before, is what I'm thinking. Well, let's finish summing it up, and then we'll discuss it, what we think about it. How about that? Because I think, doesn't he go into some other things he says? Well, he's talking about, near the end is when he really gets into the meat of it. He's talking about the economics of movies, and he comes up with some pretty disturbing statistics. Uh, namely, the, the one that stands out to me is that, that basically 10 years ago, there were fewer independent films. He doesn't actually define what independent is, but he just says there were fewer independent films, but they were they were thriving in a larger piece of the pie. And these days, there are a lot more independent films, but as a whole, they're making a much smaller portion of the overall box office. So fewer and fewer, bigger and bigger pictures are squeezing everything out. And... Um, and he's and he and he's and he's talking about the economics of it and how basically if you if you have a hundred million dollar movie it still costs around sixty million dollars to to market but it's the same thing for a ten million dollar movie you can't just do six million dollars for a ten million dollar movie because nobody will ever hear about it and nobody will ever see it so the economics for the studios are just not there for the smaller pictures and that's and, and nobody wants to spend a lot of money on a riskier picture they want to spend it on a sure thing so there's this weird economic inertia that's draining all of the attention away from the smaller challenging movies and throwing it increasingly towards the bigger stupider movies yeah i think like to be specific about the numbers for instance he said uh it's not it's not unusual to expect a hundred million dollar movie to make back um to make 250 million dollars that happens all the time but it's also really expensive to promote and distribute a 10 million dollar movie that can cost as much as 60 million and that that movie has to make 140 million in order to to turn a profit and it's it's hardly he says it's really rare for a for a 10 million dollar movie to make 160 million dollars it just doesn't happen the people don't go see movies in large numbers large numbers of people don't go see m movies unless they are big splashy movies that's just the that's just a fact and we know that from watching the oscar race every year because this last year a lot of movies made 100 plus million um, lincoln made 180 million mm. but that's usually not the case usually they don't make they just crest at 99 million sometimes they sometimes they make 100 but you think about it those are the adult movies those are the movies aimed at the oscar audience those aren't the you know the fanboy movies that are guaranteed to make 200 plus million so in a way, it's like if a movie like Good Night and Good Luck or, you know, uh, Contagion or whatever has to make $200 million to be considered successful, well, they're never going to make those kind of movies. And another thing he was talking about is the fact that the, the foreign market has become so much more important than it used to be. It used to be 40% of a movie's gross came from foreign markets. Then it was 50, now it's 60. Now it's saying that 70% of a movie's profits come from overseas. And the movies that travel well are the big, flashy fantasy uh, epics and science fiction and action movies that are not reliant so much on character and complexity and on dialogue. The more um, movies um, that rely on dialogue and 
and and are and are and are confusing to that can be confusing to foreign audiences. I have to be careful how I say that because I know that we have a lot of um, readers from all around the world, and our readers are really smart people. In order to to read and write in English and come to a site and feel confident to to contribute as a as a commenter on a site, you've got to have a pretty good command of English. So I'm not talking about those readers who grew up. Um, speaking English as a second language and are really can have no trouble following an, uh, an American movie. But that's, that doesn't, that's not what most people in, in overseas go to when they go to see the expendables, they don't go for the dialogue. They don't go for the script. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're removing whole layers of what make movies great in order for them to appeal to people who aren't, aren't as comfortable with our culture or especially our language. And so that just, mm -hmm. that's just one more limiting factor on huge, important movies. And it's, it's weird because, uh, Iron Man, which just came out this weekend and it's probably going to make a billion dollars. Um, they were, they were actually, they, they specifically pursued, um, Chinese financing so that they could have more freedom to release their film in China, right down to the point where I think I read that they actually filmed scenes that were specifically calculated for a Chinese audience. They weren't included in the American release, right. but they're now, they're now shaping. They're not just, it's not just the movies that they're choosing. The, the idea of the, 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 the weight of the foreign box office is changing the way they're actually making the movies. And that, you know, it's, it's, that worries me a little bit. I, it, it's not a racist thing. It's not because uh, people that aren't in America are bad. It's just it, it, the, the translation is a, is a stumbling block. Skyfall did the same thing. Skyfall had specifically included scenes that were that were filmed in uh, Shanghai, right, in order to so that people in, 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 in those markets can see something that they can identify with, that they're familiar with, so that it's not just – that's why a movie like Captain America – as good as it was, didn't do nearly the overseas box office that a, that a movie like Iron Man does. Because it, if a movie is about Captain America, that's automatically going to turn off a lot of people overseas. Right. Right. And that, that's the thing about Captain America is I think, well, there's a lot of people who didn't really like that one very much. I personally thought it was awesome, but, it, but it's because it was unique. It was different. It wasn't the same old thing. It had a unique flavor to it. And things with unique flavors are not going to play on a global basis like that they're going to be more niche oriented and it's just not going to play so the fear is that we'll see less and less interesting things and more and more bland things which is not good and he's right when he says that um you know that that this is what their bragging rights are their bragging rights are having the biggest movie of the year you know um box office wise like i guess the avengers was last year but um, but two things I wanted to say, you know, about what he's saying. Did you get the impression that he's mainly just talking about the studio system and that he's talking about movies that come out of mainstream mainstream Hollywood and the studios, the big I, five families? I think so, because he's talking about where he can get financing from. And he realizes he, he's encountered the difficulty in trying to even raise $10 million. Because really, what kind of movie can you make for $10 million? It's going to be at, a pretty basic movie. Yeah, I mean, but, but to me, it's like he's speaking a slight... And I like when he says, I could be wrong. Because I do think, it, to a degree, he is wrong in that... I look at the same year that two counterexamples were very prominent, which was Life of Pi, that was one of those big expensive movies that did really well overseas, 
didn't do so well here as it did overseas, but that's a complex, interesting, well-written movie. And then um, Beasts of the Southern Wild sort of shatters everything that he said because it, no, it didn't make a whole shitload of money. And no, it's not a studio bragging rights movie. But when you look at the way that that that, that movie was financed and made, you know, I, I don't know how you can ignore that. Yeah, you can. Uh, yeah. And I think he did say, I think he was careful to say there are always going to be exceptions, but he's talking about a, a trend that he's seeing that he feels like it is, that, it, that, that, that the industry is going down the wrong road. There are always going to be exceptions, and those are two great exceptions. And that I think that we can find reasons to explain both of those ex- exceptions, probably. For one thing, Life of Pi had the big fantasy, splashy, thrill ride, epic uh, visual uh, extravaganza aspect going for it and uh 20th knew that they even encouraged um they they were all they were all behind, they were really behind um uh Ang Lee when he said that he wanted it in three in 3d because they knew that 3d would be even more money you know they didn't they didn't say no we don't want it we want to try to cut cost so you need to do this in 2d they were really in favor of him doing it in 3d because they just knew that was going to be more money more money yeah and what were you going to say craig um, he he seems to be envisioning this sort of dream world where both the independent world and the and the studio world can sort of coexist as one good thing, and I think that's sort of what we had in the seventies and why the seventies were so great. And I think even though it's cyclical, we're still each cycle we're getting further and further away from that in that golden era. That golden era. Um, maybe, but uh, they're they're still, they're still great movies, but uh I want to see great movies coming out of the studios too. But maybe, maybe that's just a thing of the past. I would say that, that speaking about the seventies in particular, there are movies in from the seventies that have an indie feel to them. I would even say that all of Woody, Woody Allen's movies have an indie feeling to them, but they are all backed by big studios. Right. Uh, so, and a lot of times uh, in, in the seventies, especially well, you're talking in the seventies, because they're not backed by big studios now. But you mean back in the? Yeah, I'm trying to. Th- I'm just tr- trying to think. I don't even think that there were very many independent films in the seventies. I don't right. think that it there wasn't, were. Very it didn't many. really start I don't think until that that the eighties. I think that not this the year that we're mm-hmm. about to talk about was really the year where things changed dramatically in Hollywood. This the Star Wars year, mm-hmm. because. All of the things we all talk about today was was in threaded into this year. So many things, like it was really the last year that there were really strong, perform, you know, movies about women that were nominated. And it was Star Wars became the highest grossing film in history, and I think it only cost ten million to make. So I didn't realize it was so inexpensive. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And we also, although the although uh, Close Encounters wasn't nominated for Best Picture. That's another movie that came out the same year that also made a huge boatload of money too. So that yeah. was a, that 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 really was the turning point when studios realized the money that can be made off of science fiction. But I also think it's a strange year for Soderbergh to be making this speech. While I agree with him that I see it changing in the negative way, I totally agree with that. I see more adults staying home and watching TV where where all the action is. And I see all these movies becoming sequels. And, you know, when he was talking about the formulaic way that they test, like that guy standing up and saying, I don't like Jude Law's character, that reminds me of the bloggers. It reminds me of all the bloggers who call themselves critics now who like, you know, they they nitpick um, movies in this way of like, it has to be my fantasy. You know, it has to appeal to what I want. 
because we've been conditioned to get what we want in America. You know, well, we, the disturbing thing is not that people say those things. It's that the studios listen to them. That's the disturbing thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Really? But very. They, they didn't very used to have that power. No. I w- someone, I, 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 I'm, I'm skipping ahead a couple of years to think about um, they, um, Heaven's Gate in 1980, the movie that everyone sums up by saying incorrectly that it's the movie that sank United Artists and bankrupted a studio. That is not what happened to United Artists. United Artists was already in trouble in trouble of their own making before uh, days of um, before Heaven's Gate came along. But it, the Heaven's Gate has that reputation, and I'm thinking that if bloggers had, I think the bloggers could have saved Heaven's Gate. I think they would have ruined it. I, I think I don't think so. I think that I think that there would have been. Well, it was ruined anyway. I mean, it, I think that I think who ruined Heaven's Gate was Vincent Canby of the New York Times, single-handedly brought it down by saying it was an unmitigated disaster. I think he he was most irresponsible review in in American film history. Maybe I think that it was all Vincent Canby. It's, it's on his head, really. What's interesting to me is that. 30 or so years ago, uh, the guy who made Sex, Lies, and Videotape would have sounded much different than the guy that gave that speech now. He mm. has a similar attitude about maybe the state of things. But back then, 1989 was like the shits as far as movies were concerned. And then rather than uh, sort of making this weird mainstream speech about it, he went out and grabbed a camera and made a movie. And now he's, he's thinking of retiring. And it's kind of sad to me. Yeah, I agree. It's a sad, but I also can understand where he's coming from. I mean, a lot of his recent efforts have not been well received. Uh, what happened to that, the last one, which I unfortunately did not see, but, um, you know, even Magic Mike, it's like he, he tries to do different things and it seems like they just have not been well received. It's like people just want him to do Ocean's movies. You mean side effects? Or are you talking about side, side effects? effects and Magic Mike, which made a lot of money, but, you know, it kind of... It didn't make much of a splash, and then, um, but it did pretty I, well. You I don't think it did? Yeah, I guess it did. I guess it did. I it, just, it was, I think, outside of the Ocean's movies, it was his most financially successful, and, and I yeah. think most critics even kind of liked it. And it became sort of a, uh, for at least a couple of months there in the summer, it was kind of the thing people were talking about. Yeah, that's true. I guess you could call that one a success. Yeah. But that wasn't one of his personal projects. That he sort of, I, I kind of got the sense he just sort of did that as a favor to. Uh, Tatum Channing or Channing Tatum or whatever those names are. <laughs> I always mix it up. But I think um, about like – I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, like Solaris and, mm-hmm. you know, whenever he's tried to sort of make more challenging fare, he tends to get less credit and less appreciation than when he makes the more mainstream stuff. God, he used to be such a great filmmaker though. Traffic. And he still is a great filmmaker. But it would be the same for any 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 movie maker. Even when even – when, uh, even when Spielberg tries to do something more complex, he's not appreciated. Right. I rem- yes. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Sex, Lies, and Videotape came out. I remember what a huge deal that was um, in terms of how it got made, who this Soderbergh person was. I think he, at the time, he was he was as much of a philosophizer as he is now. Like I think he put out some kind of a manifesto or something back then about filmmaking. I can't remember exactly, but I remember hearing some advice from him. And I think he said something once really brilliantly. I wish I could remember the exact quote, but it was from the 80s. It was something like, um, 
something like talent and hard work equals luck. Be ready when it happens or some something like that. Like he would have made a great film professor, um, uh-huh. Soderbergh. But Sex, Lies, and Videotape was was written and directed by him. And it was it was unlike anything I, at that time we had seen. I and it was shot by him, and he was behind the camera too. He was, he yeah. was, as he is with a lot of his movies, he films them himself, and that's why it sort of bothers me a little. Go, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean. No, to no, that's but, exactly what I was saying. Like, and he edited mm-hmm. them, and I just feel like he was such an auteur then. You know, he just really just had so much fight in him to tell a good story. And I guess in a way, I, I don't I don't blame him for wanting to leave the hideous film industry as it is now. But I agree with you guys that, that I wish that he would still have that fight in him and want to tell. I, I wish he would think more like Ben Zeitlin. You know? It seems as if his, his, if his part of his complaint is that there are so many independent movies now. There are so many independent filmmakers trying to do the same thing that he did when right. he got his start. That's and true. that seems a little bit... Um, bitter to me that that's not that's not a good way to look at it the reason there are so many independent movies competing for audience attention now is because the availability of digital cinema it makes it so much easier for for movie for filmmakers to get started the same way he did and so that's why you have so many movies uh, small budget movies competing for a, sm- a shrinking audience I don't think he was sweating the the increase in 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 independent films. I mean, that was a part of the the equation. Mm-hmm. He was sweating the fact that they're competing for a smaller piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. It, it's coincidental that there are more of them, also. But that's because, mm-hmm. like you say, because it's so much easier to make a movie. It's still impossible to get a movie seen, but it's really easy for anybody with an iPhone to to make one if they want. But so I, I don't I don't. I didn't get that sense off of what he was saying that he was he was lamenting the fact that there are more, just that there's less there's less of a market for them individually. Right. Um, it could be a distribution problem too, you know, and maybe the problem is that's a problem that may be solving itself too, as, as with uh, video on demand and iTunes, um, that filmmakers can find an outlet for the movies to be seen. If you can fi- if you can find a way for people to find out about your movie, they will watch it. Well, I see that there's hope on the horizon with people who aren't, af- as he talks about technology, for people who aren't afraid of the new the new way things are. Um, the way things are changing, which is Netflix, um, you know, television is becoming much more of a creative place than it ever has been before. Um, the little mobile, you know, the ways we watch movies on our iPad and iPhone, you know, people who are kind of all the web designers are building these responsive designs because they know that people are looking at their stuff on their mobile devices. And you can't stop the future. This is what's coming. This is how things are changing. And, and there's no way things are going to stay the same for a hundred more years. I mean, they've been, you know, movies are changing. People are changing. And, you know, what the youth wants is changing. You know, we're old, you know, we're old and we're not, um, you know, thinking young necessarily and how, how, like Emma or whatever is going to look at the state of cinema is not the same as how Steven Soderbergh looks at the state of cinema. You know what I mean? So I, can, I, under, I understand his frustration. I know that other directors have felt the same frustration. You wonder why David Lynch, for instance, has stopped making movies. And it's right. got to be because you, it's, it's not just because he got tired of it. It's because he may found it more and more difficult to make the kinds of movies that he wanted. And one thing, one, one point I think that Soderbergh makes that I do really agree with, it's not as if studios are hurting. It's not as if, the entertainment industry is hurting. They're they're raking in a huge amount of money. So you would think that they would make room in their 
in their minds and in their in within the corporations to allow some smaller movies to be made and give them more support than they do. If you're they going to be making though. a billion, I know they don't care, and that's that's why. And he knows that's what he's talking about. That's his, and his I, frustration. Yeah, and that's right. his frustration, and I'm frustrated by that too. You would think that a movie that makes a billion dollars on Alice in Wonderland would be able to spare fifty million dollars for and to support a, another a director, even if they know they're not even going to make their money back on it. That's the thing: is that art has existed for as long as human beings have existed, and it's going to exist long after movies are no longer the thing that that people, you know, do for fun. Um, and entertainment has existed for almost as long as humans have existed. But there was a period there, and we're still in, in it, but it, 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 where, where movies were both. And I see this situation where pretty soon it's, movies are just going to be entertainment again. They're, mm. they're, it was the first, I guess you could argue that novels came before it, but it was one of the first mass audience things that was also art and that's fragmenting again and it's 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 going away there there was a a hundred year span where 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 it was the thing and now it's not going to be and i i I picture this future where we're back to individual microscopic art again and i I think and that's regrettable it is because in order to make a movie there you can still make you can still make an art film for 10 million dollars and so you can we can make an art film for Five hundred thousand dollars, like middle of nowhere, but right. Um, Who, who's but it's not going here? to be the same experience as seeing a huge, lavish, big budget movie like um, like Lincoln or like. Uh, well, like that's what that's what I'm thing. saying is yeah. that mm-hmm. it's it. Yes, it's it's a it's a drag. But on the other hand, and I've been having this conversation for ten years, the one thing holding up quality movies is the film awards race. Ironically, the Oscars. Because without the Oscars, you wouldn't have movies like Lincoln and Argo and Life of Pi and all the movies that you see heading into the Oscar race seem like to me the only thing, the only anchor holding up quality in Hollywood. And and that's the time where everybody's talking about decent movies. They don't always pick the best one, obviously, and we bitch about it every year when they don't. But it's the one time of year when, when even people who only see three or four movies a year know what's going on, and everybody can have this group conversation. I know, so it's, it's ironic that the Oscars are the one thing to me that that you know is a symbol for the future of of good films in Hollywood. It's it's weird to me that it turned out that way because looking back through their history, you know, yes, in the seventies they had a, a great you know, run. But for the most part, even in the 70s, as we'll learn as soon as we start talking through this year, in 1977, um, they've always kind of huddled to the middle. They've always wanted to be, you know, to make money and to have Hollywood be working. And, and those same idiots are running things now. Maybe this is a segue into 1977, but there, there is a certain movie that blew people's minds that currently have their th- hands around the throat of the internet and it's the fanboys and it was the movie star wars and uh that's a bad thing i think that's part of what's wrong with movies these days is the people who are are driving the conversation began with star wars and and i say that as somebody who loved star wars when he was a kid but thank god it didn't win the oscar that year that's all i can say because it would have been the wrong choice yeah um and as we head into 1977 the the a lot of the talk from critics and from Academy members was the rejection of all the things they were seeing in modern entertainment. 
what they consider to be nudity, violence, and special effects movies. So there was a rejection of that. And one of the reasons they loved that 1977 and the films that were nominated, like The Turning Point and Julia and Annie Hall, was that they were relationship movies. They were stuff about life. Um, but at the same time, people were lining up to see Star Wars six, seven, some, one guy 26 times. And I was one of those people, me and my sister. I was 12. I went back to see it over and over. I waited in line two hours to see it and still to this day know every single line of that movie. But what happened to me was that I changed. I didn't sit in my basement and continue to watch fan, you know, superhero movies and special effects movies and that didn't become my whole life. Exactly. You discovered boys and life and I discovered boys. everything outside I went, of that. I went out, I went to college, you know, I, life changed. And then I look at Star Wars and I see it as, as what it is, as a great nostalgic moment, you know. But um, I would also say that Star Wars is a great movie in its own right. I would say that it's, that, that aside from The Empire Strikes Back, that the other, the other four movies in the, in the cycle uh, didn't live up to it. And what it, what it started... Uh, didn't live up to it, but Star Wars itself is a great movie, and we don't want to denigrate Star Wars uh, as not being a, a, a worthy of being nominated. I'm, I'm not denigrating it, it but I am it's saying not, that... It's not Star Wars's fault that it ruined movies. It's kind of what Sasha said, that she mm -hmm. changed, she grew mm -hmm. up and, and outgrew Star Wars, but the studios didn't. They kept trying to replicate Star Wars, and there's a whole subset of human beings who grew up with Star Wars and have been catered to with more Star Wars ever since. They've never... They've never gone beyond it. They still have their stormtroopers in the box on the shelf. It's, it's that same exact attitude. And that's, to me, it's not Star Wars' fault. It's, 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 it's how the, the studios and the audiences responded to it that have been damaging. Because mainly when you think about it, you can't really criticize Star Wars to, to, to most people, because, to that group, to that demographic, mm -hmm. because they are fans of Star Wars, meaning they are religious followers. They, Star Wars is their faith. And you can't criticize their faith. It's like criticizing Christianity. You know, you can't <laughs> go there. But um, And I'm not criticizing Star Wars. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, the movie I dip back into more than any other of those that were nominated that year is Annie Hall. And that's because it wasn't about... It was, it was about something, and it was uncomfortable, and it was funny, and it was you know, reaching out to the full spectrum of the human experience. It was about um, relationships. It was about growing up. It was about the time. It was about the 70s, you know. Um, it's about humor. It's about adulthood. It's about self-loathing. Uh, you know, it has so much going going for it, that movie, that it, I feel like kind of that it was a – every movie that won in the 70s somehow I feel was a fluke. <laughs> it's like I don't know where these movies came from, how they got made. It was like actual thinking people made them. Thinking people paid money to see them, and they you can't, won. You can't predict them, and you can't replicate them, and that's what makes them great. Yeah, what is surprising, too, about the movies from, say, 1971 to 1975 is that there weren't, there weren't a lot of junk made that year in any way. So if you were going to nominate five of the best movies of the year, you had a lot of great movies to choose from. There were 15 or 20 great movies in all of those years, and so it would have been hard to find a movie that would have been unworthy. From right. 1972 so to 1976. The movies that didn't get in, um, Saturday Night Fever, which I thought was a great movie. I still think it's a great movie. Um, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which um, 
had been kept under wraps and it definitely got more critical acclaim than Star Wars. It, it, I think it might have cost more money, but it was definitely not the cultural phenomenon that Star Wars was. It was almost like Steven Spielberg had his moment with Jaws and now it was George Lucas's moment with Star Wars. But Closing Encounters of the Third Kind probably deserved to be nominated that year. It's a, um, it, in a in a if you go back to the to the the Spielberg or Soderbergh um, uh, what's the <laughs> sorry I'm stumbling hmm. if you if you go back to what Soderbergh was saying about escapism and and cinema I think Star Wars is escapism and I don't think that's a bad thing but it is escapism and I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is much more challenging and darker and more interesting because of it it's not as much it's not as fun of a movie but it's it's it confronts life in a in a way that star wars doesn't it could never be made today um if you watch it it's like an hour an hour it's like alien you know it's like an hour before anything happens right and then what does happen is fairly subtle. It's really kind of the inner world of this man who decides eventually to leave his family. And and there's no way a studio would go for, for a guy leaving his family today. Just never Even happened. Spielberg has said he wouldn't go for that now that he has one. He, he, yeah. He's on record as saying he could not make that movie today because he can't identify with that character abandoning his family for for space. But that's what's right. great about it is it's a reflection of him at that time and – that's what makes it wonderful. So part of what happened after the 70s um, was this kind of therapy revolution with Oprah and, and everybody kind of going, all the 70s feminists and me generation kind of going into therapy and talking about their childhood and blaming their parents, right? So suddenly our culture became much more invested in childhood, in having a happy childhood, in preserving childhood. Um, being young kind of meant everything um, in our culture all of a sudden. And so um, Spielberg's work changed because he wasn't making movies that, that kind of coddled childhood the way he started to do later. And, you know, as he sort of discovered, you know, who he was and his family and became a dad and, you know, everybody kind of now coddles the children and that has in turn affected movies and the way we see movies because, you know, people get so insulted um, if, you know, if you portray the truth kind of about how people might feel about parenthood. You can't do that anymore. Everything has to be, you know, celebrating the child and childhood and, oh, you're a good parent and, you know, God forbid you're a bad parent. You can't ever show that, you know, or you have to be punished. And it's, it's not even just about parenting. It's that whole it takes a village to raise a child nonsense where it's not. It's no longer just the parent's responsibility to raise children. It's everybody's now. And right. it goes down to the PG-13 rating, which is another thing that has helped ruin movies that were, were shrink-wrapping and sanitizing movies, making them safe for 13-year-olds. Right. And who, who wants that? And so it becomes, for me, and I'm sure a lot of people like me, because that's why they don't make movies for people like me anymore, unless they star Katherine Heigl. But, you know, I have to turn to novels and television to find any sort of substance, because I'm finding less and less of it in the movies. Even with the Oscar movies last year, there was still only half of them that I personally found intellectually stimulating. 
Silence. <laughs> I was I was trying to think of what was nominated, and I, and I, I know, totally drew like, blank. But I have so much going on in my mind right now. I don't want to be argumentative, but I would also like to say I can understand why the studios might have felt like that the movies that they were making from 1972 to 1976 or so were leaving out a part of the audience and part of their market that they were pretty much ignoring and preventing from seeing. Uh, we talk about the fact that teenagers dominate uh, what st- the studios make now, and I think that that is true. But I really kind of feel bad for a teenager in 1974 who couldn't find someone to take them to go see The Exorcist. What are you going to go see if you're if you're a kid in 1975? Well, it's if interesting. If all of the you movies should... have 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 uh, are, are 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 grown up adult movies, it doesn't leave a lot for teenagers. Right. I have I, to read you. I went you to a... see Escape from Witch Mountain. I turned out okay. I didn't have to go see The Exorcist when I was that age. There, there should be a distinction between what's for adults and what's for children, and I don't want to have what's for children shoved down my throat because I don't have children and I'm not a child. And I think I increasingly, like- because it, that's where the money is, Hollywood has gone the other way because a 40-year-old isn't going to go see a movie 10 times, whereas a, a, a 12-year-old will. Can I read you guys a quote or a little piece about Star Wars um, yeah. in the book here? Inside Oscar by Damien Bona and Mason Wiley, which we're sort of using as our Oscar Bible as we comb through the 70s. Um, it says, Star Wars, which ended up costing around $10 million, opened in May. That's why today, by the way, is, is May 4th, and everybody, that's why everybody's saying May the 4th be with you, because Star mm-hmm. Wars opened today, May um, 1977. Um, most reviewers were enthralled by the old-fashioned heroics and high-tech special effects highlighting the, galact- the galactic battle between good and evil. Judith Christ wrote that you exit feeling satisfied. Saturday afternoon at the movie Smile makes you feel so good. But Stanley Kaufman detected a case of arrested development. This picture was made for those, particularly male, who carry a portable shrine with them of their adolescence, a, chalen- a chalice of a self that was better than, before the world's affairs, in any complex way, sex intruded. Lucas saw it differently. Nobody except Disney makes movies for young people anymore, he lamented. I wanted to open up that realm of space for them. So it's interesting you point that out because he actually uh Lucas actually, you know, wanted to make movies for young people and he he changed the film industry in doing so. And he also made American Graffiti for young people too. When it, and he he and he brought not only did he make it for teenagers, he he was one of the first people who said anything about Vietnam and about the draft in 1972 or 1971 when when no studio was was daring to even mention that. But it's interesting to me that one guy's little thing about the future because that's sort of what movies have become. Exactly. I almost had to ask if he was speaking in the period or if that was something that was said five years ago because he's basically describing exactly what happened. No, this was this was written in 1977. That's incredible to me. Mm-hmm. I know. he The guy foretold it. I almost wrote it and put it on Twitter. <laughs> I almost put it on Twitter. You know what I'm noticing, you guys, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm, I'm glancing back at my notes here for 1977 and I'm trying to think about what changed so dramatically if I could put my finger on one thing. Um, and it has to do with Star Wars, but and Annie Hall, weirdly enough, is that in the seventies, you know, they didn't testing and marketing weren't the number one things. They were they were I don't even know if they tested. 
Um, maybe they were starting to, um, maybe a little bit here and there, but it wasn't like it is now, which is it's a well-oiled machine. But directors had clout back then and, and all the decades before that. They meant something. A Frank Capra or a, um, a, even in this, a Herbert Ross or a, you know, and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were kind of like the young guys kicking around the studios mm-hmm. who, who they finally let in the door and made these huge blockbusters. But what you're seeing now is a lack of respect for these heavyweights. They don't have the clout that they used to have. They don't have the, they don't have the power. They can't their name and their reputation and their Oscar history can't sell an idea. It has mm-hmm. to still fall in line with that marketing and um, fan testing and bottom line for that huge box office. So they'd rather pull in some unknown director that they know can turn in that bottom line than they do then they want to take a director who is already and has a has a legacy behind him or her a director can't open a picture and it's all about opening weekend now and that's mm-hmm. that's also related to star wars that was the first wide 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 release on opening weekend they used to platform movies a little bit at a time and now it's all about opening in 3000 or 4000 screens making all your money in the first couple of weeks and getting the hell out and and the director uh, doesn't a seem name, to matter a name director is not going to punch your numbers at all you rather have some punk you can push around and then market the shit out of it and have a simple idea that's easily sold to 13 year olds <laughs> Another thing about the director thing, we know, we talked about so many times before about how on the heels of the 1960s when Andrew Saris and, um, and, and the Cayuga Cinema people really started the whole thing about the auteur theory, yeah. about the directors being king, that, Hollywood wanted to try that out, and they gave it a really good shot in the ni- early 1970s. They gave all these young um, um, hotshot directors a chance, and they turned out turned in some really great movies. But then a lot of them, for their follow-ups, um, failed to failed to keep doing the same thing over and over. Um, uh, for instance, even William Friedkin, who who you would think the studios would be willing to give him a lot of leniency after he after turning something like The Exorcist, he blew it once with The Sorcerer in 1977, the year we're talking about. It was an abject failure and cost a lot of money, and they never gave him another chance for years and years after that. Right, and then Coppola. Look at Francis mm-hmm. Ford Coppola. Exactly. It's not uh, Chimino gets a gets a, gets the blame for being the director who was out of control and and um. And, and studios didn't want to deal with that anymore. They, did, they wanted to take the, the power away from the director. But it wasn't only Chimino. Coppola went out of control in Apocalypse Now. Uh, John Schlesinger um, really fumbled Day of the Locust. And um, Hal Ashby went way over budget on Bound for Glory. These directors did some great movies, but studios were beginning to see we can't be giving these guys all this power because they're, not, they, they're, they're too risky. Right, and so now the only the reason Chimino gets the blame for it is because that goddamn book that the guy from United Artists wrote that everybody read that mm-hmm. basically foisted all of the studio's responsibility off and put it on Chimino. And basically, mm-hmm. Chimino was doing whatever anybody would do if somebody gave him $40 million to do right. whatever they wanted. Wait, we're exactly saving right. Chimino. Yeah. We're saving Chimino. Right. Um, okay, yeah. the, but the directors that have really withstood all of this, who are kind of uh, like, is, is really Steven Spielberg, is one. Mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese is another, and and that's because both of their movies make money, and and and, and exactly. uh, Scorsese, you know, didn't really make money with Hugo. Hugo lost a huge amount of money, but he took major strides with technology anyway. He's not afraid of technology. He's not afraid of 
the way things are moving. He, he and Ang Lee are really working within the realm of how technology is changing. That's how I look. That's how I see it with these big name directors. And yet at the same time, if their movies didn't make money, they'd be out. Mm -hmm. right. And Scorsese was able to fly under the radar a lot in the 1970s and 1980s because his movies didn't really cost that much. He didn't make the big extravaganzas, and so he didn't have to worry about uh, earning back $150 million. I think that Scorsese did pull back a lot after he made Taxi Driver. I think it might have disturbed him a little bit that he'd made such a violent movie. And then, then there were the like the incident I talked about last week about the the ex-Marine who, who went on a shooting spree and then shot himself in that bar. I think Scorsese for 15 years after that, never made another violent movie. He made com he made some comedies and he made a musical and he made, he made some really sort of low-key movies. It was, it was a long, long time before he made Goodfellas and Casino. I'm glad that you brought up The Sorcerer, Ryan, because <laughs> it, it, what you were saying about how it's not the auteurs that really ruined... There was no single auteur that ruined... The, the good thing that the 70s had going and I would argue that it wasn't the auteurs in general who did because The Sorcerer's a great movie. I don't know if anybody's seen it recently mm -hmm. but it at the time that it came out it was the move the, the follow-up movie from the guy who did The Exorcist and it starred the guy from Jaws and it had a title that made it sound sort of exorcist -y, and nobody knew what the hell it was and you're right it totally flopped but looking back history shows that just because it flopped it doesn't mean it was a bad movie. It was a terrific movie, just like Apocalypse Now is a terrific movie. Mm. But, of course, the studios don't care about that. Right. They just care that, it, that suddenly the, the, the keys to the magic for Exorcist, for as far as they were concerned, was no longer Friedkin. It had to be something else. And so they mm -hmm. turned away from these guys. He wasn't going to give drugs. them anymore. He wasn't going to give them another Exorcist. They, right. they, he wasn't going to do another movie like that because a movie like that is really a one-off thing. You really can't keep making movies like that over and over again. And Friedkin knew that. I think it was a mistake probably to give a remake of The Wages of Fear to give it a, a title like Sorcerer. I think mm -hmm. that that misled a lot of people and a lot of people went into the theaters with the wrong expectation and it caused really bad word of mouth when they found out that it was a suspense adventure thriller instead of a supernatural thing. Right. Um, but for whatever reason, yeah, I think, the, but I do think the studios, uh, it's their fault for not having more faith in directors to let them get away with a few with a bomb now and then and the thing is is that if if the movies like solaris or whatever if movies that were you know more challenging to audiences were making a lot of money that's the way the studios would go at mm -hmm. the end of the day it does come down to what the public wants now, I'll read you really quickly the movies in 1977, the top 20 at the box office from 1977. Number one, Star Wars, $460 million, made for $10 million. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, number two, Saturday Night Fever, Smokey and the Bandit, The Goodbye Girl, The Rescuers, Oh God, A Bridge Too Far, The Deep, The Spy Who Loved Me, Annie Hall was number 11, highest grossing of the year, and it only made $30 million, $38 million. Semi-Tough, Pete's Dragon, The Gauntlet, The Turning Point, Heroes, High Anxiety, uh, Exorcist II, The Heretic, Airport 77, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, and Slapshot. And, and that makes me think that I remember back then, sequels were frowned upon. People thought they were lame. People thought mm -hmm. it was lame that they made, you know, a Jaws 2 and an Exorcist 2 because they were all bad. Somewhere in the 80s and 90s, they got the sequel formula right. 
I don't know how they did it, what they did. It probably had to do with testing and branding and conditioning. I don't know. But things have changed in that regard. We view we don't view sequels as sequels anymore. We just view them as this as, as a different movie with the same formula. It's like I'm going to go drive and get my Happy Meal now. It's the next episode of our own ids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the next episode. So anyway, that that's the only reason I bring that up is that at the end of the day, I do think it comes down to what the audiences are going to buy, and that comes down to having a more educated public, and that comes down to. <sighs> again, to maybe a movie that will blow their fucking minds and change what they want to see and what they want to pay money to see. I mean, it is a snake eating its own tail. There doesn't seem to be a clear answer. But it is important that you point out that movies have always been about making money and nobody can ever argue against that. Right. When you look at this 1977 and you read about all these different movies, all the movies that were nominated for Best Picture made a lot of money. It was, you know, as we're going through the 70s, The French Connection, The Exorcist, um, Rocky, you know, Annie Hall, and Star Wars, is these are big moneymakers of the year. It's just that that's what the studios were making. That's what the audience wanted to see. Um, that's, those, that's those are good examples. Those are, those, are, those are examples of movies that did make a lot of movie, but uh, make a lot of money. But there are also examples of Best Picture nomin- nominees that did not make a lot of movie, like Taxi Driver, for instance, only made $28 million. But it isn't didn't need to make a lot because it didn't cost a lot. But isn't the $28 network, million network a lot only made for back then, right? million. If, if $38 million is one of the highest grossing films of the year, isn't $27 million for Taxi Driver a lot for that time? I think um, it would be. I, the, the Rocky made 117 million dollars, and and Network made 23 million. So I, it isn't the same ballpark. But I'm not sure uh, as far as uh, cost effectiveness about because Network probably cost more a lot more to make than Rocky. But I think I remember reading in Inside Oscar that one of the reasons Taxi Driver was nominated was because it made money. Mm, okay. um, and surprisingly, mm-hmm. like they, yeah. it surprised them that it made as much money it, it, as it, it did. It, yeah, I'm sure it surprised people that it made as much money as it did. But it was a, it was the 17th uh, highest grossing movie of the year. That's pretty uh, good, um, wouldn't you say? It's, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. Definitely not bad. Um, but I'm just saying that not, not, not every movie that was nominated was a Rocky or a or a or a Exorcist. We know that, right? But not like now, where a movie like Hurt Locker for a teeny tiny amount could have won. Not mm-hmm. only be nominated, yeah, but absolutely. I mean, Although that, we know that was an anomaly that has never, ever happened before and may never happen again. Right, and this last year was also an anomaly because for the for the past few years, the Oscar movies, um, they had to be movies where they ignored the box office. They had to ignore the box office because otherwise <laughs> they're going to have to start nominating crap, you know? Yeah. So they started ignoring the box office, but by some weird fluke, last year all the movies made like $100 million. I mean, yeah, that was really. I think it was a fluke. I think it, but I think it was. I think that, there, that we were just really lucky that there were a lot of really high quality movies that that struck the right chord with audiences last year. It's a rare thing, but it does happen from time to time. All right, I have to change the subject um, mm-hmm. because we're running out of time. I can't believe we're running out of time because it seems like we barely touched on on any of the actual movies from 1977. And even even when we talked, we've talked about Star Wars. We've talked so much about the box office and about the fact that how it how it changed everything but we didn't really talk so much about anything about wh- I think what we Lucas have to, was trying yeah i think i'll end up cutting a lot of it out some of the mm-hmm. stuff were um but 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 i'll see but but because i don't want to like put this off and do it the next week i think we should just try to barrel through if we can mm-hmm, i think so too 
Um, okay, so let me just say one of the things about the 1977 Oscar ceremony was that there was only one thing people were talking about. They weren't talking about Annie Hall. They weren't even really talking about Star Wars. Do you know what they were talking about? Vanessa Redgrave and her acceptance speech. That's right. Vanessa Redgrave and her acceptance speech. It was such a big deal that there were there were protesters um, from the PLO supporting her, but she was supporting she was supporting um, the Palestinians having their own state, mm-hmm. and the Jewish Defense League um, were threatening the academy to be you know with bombs with bomb threats, and they were protesting and calling her a murderer. Um, this is good grief. I mean, th- let's think about that for a minute, though. The Jewish Defense League is threatening to bomb the Oscars. That's a very weird thing, isn't it? It is. The bomb bombs did go off, not on the Oscars, but when the movie that they're, that caused the controversy was the documentary The Palestinian that she narrated. It was supposed to open um, the, the morning that it was supposed to open at the um, what is now the Writers Guild Theater on Doheny. A bomb went off that morning, so it was already extremely controversial. And they, there, there were threats, and 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 they were burning her in effigy, and it was it was a a huge deal and ironic because she was nominated for playing a Jewish woman who was caught up in the Holocaust. And here's her, here's what she said: um, "My dear colleagues, I thank you very much." For the tribute to my work, I think that Jane Fonda and I have done the best work in our lives, and I think this is in part due to director Fred Zinneman. And I also think it's in part because we believed and we believe in what we were expressing. Two out of, million, two out of millions who gave their lives and were prepared to sacrifice everything in the fight against fascist and racist Nazi Germany. And I salute you and I pay tribute to you. And I think that you should be proud that in the last few weeks you've stood firm and have refused to be intimidated by the threats of the small bunch of Zionist hoodlums. There's your mistake. It's using the word Zionist. It's inflammatory, right? And then people gasp and they boo and there's a smattering of applause. Whose behavior is an insult to the stature of Jews all over the world and their great and heroic record of struggle against fascism and oppression. And I salute that record, and I salute all of you for having stood firm and dealt a final blow against that period when Nixon and McCarthy launched a worldwide witch hunt against those who tried to express in their lives and their work the truth that they believed in, a small sprinkling of boos and hisses. I salute you, and I thank you, and I pledge to you, swelling of applause, that I will continue to fight against anti-Semitism and fascism. Now, mind you, she never says a single thing about the Palestinians. Right. They just all knew. Right. They just all knew. But and but that was a terrible decision to have used the word Zionist. I, she I meant it, she, though. She meant yeah, it. Yeah, I know she did. I, I, know I, she I thought did. that, too. When I first heard it, I thought, yeah. okay, well, what she's saying is fine. It was just that word. Mm-hmm. But she meant it because Zionism and Judaism are not the exact same thing. You have to be one right. to be the other. Exactly. But she's you have people strictly talking have... about Israel as a political state and an entity, and that was what she was talking about. And she and, and obviously there are people who, if you're anti-Zionist, then you're also anti-Jewish, and that's often true. But she, I don't think that she is or was, and she's been very consistent about her beliefs in human rights and and fighting for oppressed people everywhere and she feels you mean you don't think that she was ever anti-semitic right no exactly yeah right i have to say i just this is the first time i've ever heard about the fact that the jewish defense league uh set off bombs in los angeles the day of the oscars 
Well, um, we don't know that they did. They, yeah, right. they okay. burned yeah, her right. in effigy and they protested her, and it happened that they threatened to go off the screening, but we don't know that that was actually a so, so, So that's the kind of people, those are the kind of people who could be uh, called um, legitimate, legitimately called Zionist, I guess, or they're radical. Um, yeah, so, I mean, well, yeah. that's the thing is that they they were hoodlums and they were Zionists. She's not saying that all Zionists are necessarily hoodlums, but in this case, they were. All right, so then it gets into the weird area because it turns into a war with with Vanessa Redgrave and Patty Chayefsky. Right, Patty Chayefsky gets up, he's giving out the uh, screenwriting award, and he writes. Um, he says, I would like to say, personal opinion, of course, that I'm sick and tired. This is Patty Chayefsky, <laughs> the guy who wrote Network. I would like to say, personal opinion, of course, that I'm sick and tired of people exploiting the Academy Awards. Loud applause and bravos. For the propagation of their own personal propaganda, more applause. I would like to suggest to Miss Redgrave that her winning an Academy Award is not a pivotal moment in history, does not require a proclamation, and a simple thank you would have sufficed. And I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't appreciate that he said that. I think that when you when you get this, when you have the the microphone and you have the world stage, that you're entitled to say what you want to say. I know that the people in the academy don't like to hear it. They didn't like to hear what Michael Moore said, but that doesn't mean that that people that Michael Moore should be shouted down either. But it continues on. Um, mm-hmm. He says uh, he was proud of the fact that quote she tried to speak to me afterward and I cut her dead. Um, and then he says. At the after party, seeing Vanessa make the rounds from table to table at the ball, chatting with the other guests and kissing friends, Patty steamed. This is disgusting. Vanessa thinks she can get away with anything. How can she have the nerve to come here? I don't appreciate that. How much of his beef is political, though, I'm wondering, and how much of it is just this, you know, he made it sound like he was trying to protect the Academy Awards, but I get the sense that he just had a political difference with her. I, don't I know. do too. Yeah, I think so too. You know what? In contrast, can I? I wasn't going to bring this up. I didn't know if we would have time, and it seemed like a little bit too much of a tangent. But you know, of course, Julia is about Lillian Hellman and yeah. her relationship with Dashiell Hammett, and about her friendship with a woman named Julia, who was an anti-Nazi activist in in 1934. And, and Jane Fonda played Julia. It's a really respected movie. You know, it won the BAFTA Award for Best Film in 1977. It was nominated for 11 Oscars, so it was a highly respected movie. And it it was released um, in October of 19. Let's see, when 1977, I think. And in March of 1977, at the 1977 Academy Awards, the presenter for Best Documentary was Lillian Hellman. Lillian yeah. Hellman was invited to present the Oscar for Best um, Best Documentary. Uh, Harlan County, USA won that year. But any, let me just read you real, really briefly what Lillian, Lillian Hellman said in 1977, just five months before Julia w- was released. She's, uh, she takes the stage. Nobody expects her to make a statement. They're, they think she's there to present the Oscar and she's not going to do anything else. But she says, I was once upon a time a respectable member of this community. Respectable didn't necessarily mean more than I took a daily bath when I was sober. I didn't spit except when I meant to. And I mispronounced a few fancy words of French. Then suddenly, even before Senator Joe McCarthy reached for that rusty poisoned axe and I and many others were no longer acceptable to the owners of this industry. They confronted the wild charges of Joe McCarthy with the force and courage of a bowl of mashed potatoes. I have no regrets for that period. Maybe you never do when you survive. But Mm -hmm. I have a mischievous pleasure in being restored to respectability tonight. 
understanding full well that the younger generation who asked me here tonight meant more by that invitation than my name or my history. Wow. It's especially interesting because she, as somebody who fought so hard against McCarthy, that that McCarthy's name was invoked in in, um, what's-her-name's speech, in Vanessa Mm -hmm. Redgrave's speech, comparing the people who were reacting to her as being McCarthyist. Right. Two years in a row he was mentioned, and she had a profound effect on, on Lillian Hellman's life and on Dashiell Hammett's life and on so many people who were blacklisted in Hollywood in the 1950s, which was a really shameful thing for the industry. And for Lillian Hellman to come back and triumph in 27 years later and to really um, really put the Academy in their place by, may, by having them sit and listen to that. And I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not sure what the reaction was. I'm reading this off of Wikipedia. Um, so she may have been booed that night. But I believe that people have a right to say things like that at the Oscars, whether or not oh, the Academy wants to hear so, it or not. They're so silly. Um, they're you, can, so... you can YouTube um, Vanessa Redgrave's speech. I would encourage everybody to listen to it themselves. It, it sounds a little different than, than the way it reads. At least it did to me. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very much defensive, more defensive, I think, when you hear her mm-hmm. saying it. Um, so also they were saying back then, Time Magazine, um, this, is, this, is, this is what being a loudmouth and a shrew and a bitch about feminism can do. This is the kind of change it can make because in 1977, Time Magazine noted that um, a determined trend spotter can point to a handful of new films whose makers think that women can bear the dramatic weight of a production. Newsweek also picked up on this trend with a cover story called Hollywood's New Heroines, and People Decreed in 1977 will be recorded as the year the holdout state of Hollywood finally ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. So it made a difference. It really did. And, and, and you know, and, and all of the, the backlash against feminism, I think, had a, had a negative impact on women in Hollywood. Um, but they were still complaining about the depiction of, of um, blacks and African-Americans, the uh, Blacks and Media Broadcasting Organization called BIMBO. Oh, he- A representative told Daily Variety that the Academy Awards show, quote, adds to racism, segregation, and totally negative image of blacks while honoring the white glory, success, and superiority. And then finally, the last thing I want to say from this book um, Woody Allen skipped out on the Academy Awards to go play his regular Monday night gig uh, as a, as my, at Michael's Pub, and um, he didn't find out till the next day he won, and he said, I know it sounds horrible, but winning an Oscar for Annie Hall didn't mean anything to me. I have no regard for that kind of ceremony. I just don't think they know what they're doing. When you see who wins those things or doesn't win them, you can see how meaningless the Oscar thing is. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds just like um, Louis Benoit, doesn't it? Can you imagine anybody saying that today? Any Oscar no. winner? I mean, even even when someone just barely says, you know, um, looks cross-eyed at the Oscars like uh, Joaquin Phoenix did, he, he automatically assumes that he's ruined his chances. <laughs> but but the Academy didn't hold it against him. They certainly nominated him many more times after that, and he won Oscars after that. Well, and they didn't hold it against Vanessa Redgrave either because she won. Right, you know, uh-huh. you'd think that they that that would have kept them from, unlike Catherine. You saw what happened to Catherine Bigelow. By contrast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so because now it's different. Things are different now. The money really does control things. Although talking, speaking about Julia, and speaking about the fact that that, that, that about uh, back to Soderbergh to try to maybe tie some of this together about how Soderbergh doesn't have thinks that uh, how, that uh, studio executives don't know anything about making movies now. Uh, Fred Zinnemann, you know, directed Julia, who had directed. 
From Here to Eternity. He directed uh, A Man for All Seasons. I think his, I think his four or five, he directed High Noon. So his four or five most famous movies um, were nominated for a total of over 50 Oscars. Fred Zinnemann himself won four Oscars. You, the famous story about Fred Zinnemann, and he, he goes to, to, a, to see a studio executive in the 1970s to talk about getting financing for a picture, and there's some young hotshot executive who doesn't even know who Fred Zinnemann is, despite the fact that his movies have been nominated for 50 Oscars and he's won four. So the studio executive leans back and says, okay, Mr. Zinnemann, can you tell me a little bit about your career? Like, what have you done recently? <gasps> and Zinnemann says, sure, you go first. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Can you imagine? I know, oh really. God. It's a fa- that's a really famous story. It's like, like it's. Uh, I wanted to try to find a way to squeeze that in, so I'm glad we had an opportunity. I kind of feel like the, that sums up what it's like now in Hollywood. Yeah, this is tangential, but it's both Fred Zinnemann and and Julia, which was the big nominated film. Did you read Ryan what he had said about that movie and about Lillian Hellman after he made the movie? Uh, no, I don't think I'm familiar with that. No, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently it's controversial about whether Lillian Hellman's story on which it was based was even true or not. And he decided that it wasn't. And he said mm-hmm. he did an interview with um, Cineast Magazine, and he said Lillian Hellman wrote a book called Pentimento, which with chapters which supposedly dealt with her life, and a short story called Julia. She wrote about a woman she knew and then helped and had helped in Germany, which was not true. Lillian Hellman, in her own mind, owned half of the Spanish Civil War, while Hemingway owned the other half. She would portray herself in situations that were not true. An extremely talented, brilliant writer, but she was a phony character, I'm sorry to say. My relations with her were very guarded and ended up in pure hatred. Oh my! When did when did he write that? Do you have any idea when he said that? I don't know offhand, but I know that there was further controversy. There was somebody that... Hellman disagreed with that was writing stuff about her lying and there's this huge lawsuit that she was involved with in involving Dick Cavett and a bunch of other people right up until the time of her death about mm-hmm. whether or not she was writing the truth. I don't I don't know. I'll have to go back and look to see. It came, it came from a book of interviews that he did and I, I don't remember when the date was. Uh-huh. I remember a little bit about that and I do remember the controversy but I do also think that she because of the fact that it, she was speaking about a real life person and she was also talking about this Julia's family who were still surviving who were still and and and, and Julia supposedly had a child who went missing who Lillian Hellman was was apparently supposed to try to find and she was never able to locate so she might have tried to change the identity by changing the names of some of the characters but you know that I'm looking now in another book I've got, uh, the way that Pentimento, I mean, the way that Julia opens is a quote from Pentimento. And it's, it's pretty clear about the fact that it's about the, 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 the way that memories can change the way, I don't know, the way that, the way that we can misremember things or that we remember things uh, in order to make them more palatable to ourselves today. It's uh, the, the movie Julia itself opens with a quote, Lillian Hellman speaking, and she says, old paint on canvas, Old paint on canvas, as it ages, sometimes becomes transparent. When that happens, it's possible in some pictures to see the original lines. A tree will show through a woman's dress. A child makes way for a dog. A boat is no longer on the open sea. That is called pentimento because the paint, the painter repented or changed his mind about what he wanted to show. The paint has aged now, and looking back, I wanted to see what, what for me was once what for me there was once and what there is for me now. So she was almost in a way admitting in Pentimento that her memories 
that she was writing a sort of fictionalized autobiography. It wasn't, it was a fictionalized memoir. I don't think she ever claimed that it was word for word fact. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, sorry, maybe that went on too long. No, no, I just I read two really long quotes now. I didn't mean to do that. I, and I'm not really, really very good at it. I, I didn't mean to sound dismissive, but I literally only knew of it what I had read him Greg's saying. Just like, well, whatever. I, just, I, do, I really, really like the movie Julia a lot. I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it and who might look back and think that it was one of the least important movies of 1977 to really give it a chance and go back and look at that movie because it is first class. It is literate and intelligent. It's profound. It's Jane Fonda's very best performance of her career, I wow. think. And Jason Robards, who didn't who won for the previous year for for all the president's men uh, was nominated again for for Julia and and won he won two years in a row for best supporting actor Jason Robards did playing Dashiell Hammett it's you know what it's just never going to get that good again never it's never going to get as good as it was in 1977 you know i i don't mean to argue with Ryan again but i didn't like Julia quite as much as he did um, <laughs> that's okay it's still good it's still it's still very good and it's still but i'm i'm looking at the movies that were nominated and it's like on one hand it's 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 fantastic that all all five nominees even Star Wars had strong, interesting female characters in them. And in the case of, of Julia and the case of um, Turning Point, they were actually driven by the female characters. But Annie Hall, to me, is the only one that really stands out as being... Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that Julia was better than Annie Hall. Great. I'm, oh, no, no. I, no, I, probably, no, I, I know you're not. Rather, I would probably have rather seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind nominated over Julia. But that was never going to happen. The Academy has never nominated two science fiction movies in the same year. I guess except for the year of when Avatar and District 9 were both nominated, but that's because they had 10 nominees. But they were never going to nominate both Star Wars and Close Encounters the same year. I, I would say that Julia ranks, to me at least, in the, in the top 10 movies of 1977, though. Certainly better than The Goodbye Girl and better, by far better than The Turning Point, was, which was just a soap opera. Yeah, it's funny that uh, two, two Herbert Duras-directed movies were nominated mm, for right. Best Picture. And neither wow. one of them is, is that great. I hadn't even thought about the fact that they were both not directed by Herbert Ross. That's weird. He produced one and then he directed them both. And That's speaking it. of that, it's so funny because um, when Neil Simon was going to make The Goodbye Girl, he, he was going to make – it was going to be called um, – Humphrey Bogart slept here and it was going to star Robert De Niro. <laughs> Robert De Niro backed out and then they, he rewrote it for Richard Dreyfus. And uh, and then he cast he 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 got Herbert Ross to direct it and he cast Marsha Mason his wife as the uh, as the woman of course famously and yeah. she had to be very defensive about it you know getting that part she had to say oh no he would have given it to me anyway even if I wasn't um, the wife and she actually got really really good reviews she was good in it yeah. but her character is super annoying and yeah. actually Richard Dreyfuss's character is really annoying too I would I'm love to say, have seen yeah. I would love to have seen the the uh, Robert De Niro version of that film. Take out the precocious little shit kid and put in Robert De Niro, and you, you could even have Marsha Mason. That'd be fine and see them two going out together. I have a special be, place in my heart for the Goodbye Girl. I have to do, do you that. really? Oh my god! I remembered it. That was I was surprised when I watched it today that I that it bugged me because I remember loving it back in the day. I was like that. I mean, my friends and I related to that kid. You know, she wears the clothes we wear. She was talking about the stuff we talked about. Um, she was really precocious, it's true, but how cool to have such two strong women in a movie like that. I mean, and I love Marsha Mason. 
in the I love all the horrible humiliating things she has to go through and I love it that it's a movie about a girl that repeatedly gets dumped and I love all the funny references you know I can take only so much Neil Simon for the most part I cannot mm-hmm. stand his writing I think he's mm-hmm. a, just an awful schmaltzy writer but that movie for some reason partly because it's from the 70s and I just remember it so well but partly because and partly because they don't do romantic comedies like that anymore I mean you had Annie Hall and the Goodbye Girl two romantic comedies in the same year and you know they kick the ass of any stupid rom-com even though rom-coms try to be like Annie Hall what they really mm-hmm. try to be like is when Harry met Sally which was Annie Hall light you know mm-hmm. if i could only think of a recent rom-com that was a best picture nominee that doesn't live up to that but i can't think of any offhand but i love it that he confronts her you know for being <laughs> selfish I, I, there's so much about it i love I, I admit that at the end it does it does bug a little hard where <laughs> She's so desperate for a man, you know. Yeah. Gets a little yeah. Neil Simon there at the end. It does. but I feel the same way you do about Neil Simon, but I'm going to give it another chance. I haven't seen it for maybe 10 or 15 years, that movie. I maybe I saw it on TV with full of commercials, and I probably didn't get a good impression of it. I may have only seen it once and maybe not even all the way through, but it didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. No, I mean, I cringe halfway through it, but on the other hand, it's, it's one of those guilty pleasures. Not unlike Star Wars, I have to admit it. It holds a nostalgic place um, in my mm-hmm. heart for for it having been a movie that you know we all saw back then. And and anybody who knows that movie and likes it enough will joke about it often, like how he had to play Richard the Second or whatever, and mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. he does that, the way that. he plays it. Even though that's a total stereotype, that whole. And he probably did get a boost. He won Best Actor, of course. Richard Jarvis won Best Actor in 1977. He probably did get a boost from his from supporters um, who had seen Close Encounters too. Who, yeah, oh, absolutely. Who maybe liked that movie more? And he was better in that. Yeah, he was better. He should have won for that, but he was never going to win yeah. for that. You know how the Academy, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, but and but, he beat. I mean, that's that's why that's the re, he, Richard Drivers prevented Annie Hall from from cleaning from uh, clearing the table right. because Annie Hall won everything else that year. And he and Woody Allen is one of the few people who might have actually won that Oscar for actor as well as director. Mm-hmm. And it was the first movie since um, Citizen Kane that got those nominations. That right. got um, picture, screenplay, and actor uh, for one person, for, for one, one person, one individual. Yeah. yeah, and it was the it was the first movie since uh, it happened one night to to get nominated in in all five top categories: writing, best picture, best director, best actor, and best actress. It's pretty incredible. It is really. Uh, I I have. Yeah, I have just a lot of respect for Annie Hall. I don't ever these anytime I've t- tried to boost the talking about Star Wars or Julia or the, any of these other movies, I have no problem at all with Annie Hall winning. I think it's one of the best best picture choices of all time. Mm. I, and it's interesting too when you think about the, Annie Hall, the way that Woody Allen faces the camera and talks directly to the camera, how how and the fact that he was a stand up comedian, how much that resembles what Seinfeld did. In, in Seinfeld and what Louis C.K. does in his program with the stand-up thing, the way that his stand-up intermingles with the story that he's telling about his his, his own life. Yeah. Seinfeld and, and Louis C.K. do the same thing that Annie Hall did. Well, it was like they these guys, they set up the film schools, the various film schools, that, that Spielberg, Woody Allen, George Lucas, um, and Martin Scorsese really were the – you know, they gave birth to whole generations of filmmakers who followed in their footsteps. Almost mm-hmm. every young filmmaker you can see, you can you can put into one of those categories that that followed one of those directors. 
And Woody Allen, you know, he revolutionized film and the way men saw themselves and, you know, the romantic comedy. I mean, every... He made the, like, the little, you know, the Jewish schlub <laughs> interesting mm-hmm. and sexy, you know. Mm-hmm. And nobody had really done that before to that degree. But he was so funny. I mean, that movie is so funny. It's still funny. It's yeah. laugh out loud funny. And even after seeing it ten times, you still are, 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 are it takes your breath away how funny it is. I know. She's, he's like, um. He, he he stopped doing his, <laughs> uh, you know, what's the problem, Abby? The universe is expanding. <laughs> well, <laughs> how is that your business? How is, how that, is that your, your business? business? Well, if the universe is expanding. What's the point? Just, and it's funny, I'm not, a, I'm not a morose type. I'm not a depressive character. I, I, I uh, you know, I was a reasonably happy kid, I guess. I was brought up in Brooklyn during World War II. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Harvey? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something you read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. It won't be expanding for billions of years yet, Alvy. Yeah, we've got to try and enjoy ourselves while we're here, huh? Huh? <laughs> it seems like Woody Allen people break into a couple of camps where there are people who prefer his serious movies and then there's other people who prefer his earlier zany comedies. And Annie Hall seems to be the one movie that all of his fans can sort of rally behind. Mm-hmm. It's got the funny, but it also has the more serious, you know, real-life themes at the same time. Woody Allen's movies in the early 70s are a little bit too slapstick for me. They're a little bit too absurd. They're almost too... They verge on Monty Python almost. But, but Annie Hall was a turning point for him. He, he started to get a lot more literate and a lot more intellectual after Annie Hall. Oh, I would yeah. say that I fall into the camp where I, I really prefer his serious movies, even the movies that are, that are straight-up dramas like Interiors and... And Crimes and Misdemeanors, I don't even really consider to be a comedy. Those are my favorite Woody Allen films. Yeah, same here. But I I feel like every one of his movies has something of value in it. mm -hmm. Even his really, really shitty ones. Just a a moment here to shout out to Gordon Willis, cinematographer for Annie Hall, who was introduced to Woody Allen by Diane Keaton because she knew him from The Godfather. And the fact that Gordon Willis was the cinematographer on so many fantastic movies from the 70s. I mean, when you think yeah. about that he shot All the President's Men and both Godfather films and the Parallax View and Annie Hall, and that he was the cinematographer on on almost all of my favorite Woody Allen movies, Manhattan and Annie Hall and Interiors and Zelig and Purple Rose of Cairo. He shot all of those. Oh, he's so amazing. Um, I happen to be reading Diane Keaton's biography right now, then again, that she wrote. And you'd be stunned at how many... I mean, everybody knows that he got Annie Hall from her. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's common. Oh, knowledge. and everybody knew it in Hollywood, too, right? They knew Yeah, they knew that it was yeah. autobiographical. But I... And, and I am a total Woody Allen ophile. I know every single line to Annie Hall. And I felt like I was Annie Hall in high school. Did you but dress like her? I dress like her <laughs> for years. People will still make that association now. People who know me now still make that association that I was like Annie Hall. 
But um, that's how much. I mean, and I wasn't the only one. Of course, every, a lot of women felt that way. But I especially felt that way because I was. A, I did feel like I was a lot like her. Um, she grew up in California. You know, she was kind of a pothead. She was sort of ditzy. She was self-educated. You know, so many things we had in common. But, but in the book, like she has that brother. She has Dwayne, <laughs> Alvy. <laughs> you know, right. uh-huh. sometimes when I'm driving at night. <laughs> Who's that? Christopher Walken, yeah. too, right? <laughs> Christopher Walken, that guy, she does have a wacky brother like that. And she has yeah. a Grammy Hall. I mean, she has all of these characters. And, you know, right. Annie Hall was supposed to be called Anhedonia about a guy who, who couldn't stand people and didn't want to go out in public. And after they, they went in the editing room and they saw all the footage and they realized it was about her. Mm-hmm. It was about Annie, and so they right. recut it to be, make it that to make it. I think Annie Hall, Annie, anhedonia means the inability to experience pleasure. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I, there was a there was a sequence in Annie Hall that Woody Allen filmed, where after Annie Hall goes back to Los Angeles, he goes to Times Square and stands in the middle of Times Square, and all the advertisements and all the news tickers that running around the sides of the buildings, you know, that they have, uh, were saying things like, "What's wrong with you, Ali?" What's wrong with you, Alvy? Follow her. Go get her. You know, what are you waiting for? Don't let her get away. And, and he watched that footage and he hated it so much that he took the film reels and he took them up to the Newark Reservoir and threw them in the reservoir. <laughs> he hated that sequence so much because it was so, it just didn't fit. You know, he did it. He took a lot of chances in Annie Hall. The thing with the animation and the split screen. Oh my God, it's so Speaking free. directly to the camera. So inventive. It's so inventive. And you know, at the end where he goes, um, you know, he's showing his play and she says, wait, I want to go with you. I love you. <laughs> he mm, makes a joke right. about that. He's like, oh, if life, you know, if that was how life was. And, and of course, that's what movies are now. Movies do mm-hmm. that now. Romantic comedies do those endings and they, without shame, you know. Right. That's the thing about Annie Hall. It's really, it's kind of a downer ending because he doesn't get the girl. That's just one of the rare rom-coms where the guy doesn't end up with the girl is another thing that movies stopped doing in the 1970s, leaving you when the lights come up with a downer ending. Mm. Movies movies wanted to begin to give you the happy ending for everything. even, And I think studios saw that in Star Wars and, and really... And audiences did too. The way that people cheered at the end of Star Wars when when, every, when the good guys triumphed, you know. And, they, and Hollywood didn't care. I mean... If it's a Wookiee who has a ha- who lives happily happily ever after, they're happy with that. You know, let's just do more of that. <laughs> Wookiee. <laughs> Romantic comedies today are made for the people who don't end up with the girl, which is most of us. Oh gosh. Whereas in a movie like Annie Hall has the balls to show you the reality of it. And nine which times is- out of ten, you don't end up with the right person. That's right, and it's so much more realistic, and it means you would think it would mean so much more to people who've actually lived through more relationships like that, because almost everybody has more failed relationships than they do relationships that succeed, and so you would think that people would want to see movies about that, but they don't. We use a large vibrating egg. Well, it's surprising to me. I'm sorry, could I? No, no, never mind. It's surprising to me that Woody Allen himself doesn't like Annie Hall that much. It's not his favorite because it didn't. It's not the movie that he had in his head. He he can't see that it's a great movie because it's not the movie he wanted to make. Right. Even though it it worked out all right, but it's just not his personal favorite. Do you know what he does say is his favorite movie? Is it Interiors? My little anecdote would be awesome if I did know that, and I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's never really been satisfied with his work overall. No, he's never been satisfied with anything. That's what's driven him all of these years. That's what makes him great. If you ask him if his work is any good, he'll say no, it's not. (laughs) 
Right. I've read <laughs> I that about him too. That, that almost all, almost every movie that he finishes, he wants to be divorced from it. it ne- and they never turn out the way he expects them to, and he's dissatisfied with all of them. It's amazing, isn't it? He doesn't well, that's, think that's he's... the brilliance of his line about the universe expanding. He could have just had an orgasm, and his <laughs> brain would go to the universe expanding, and it would ruin everything because there's always something to be worried about. Or he says, as Balzac said, as Balzac <laughs> there, goes say, the there goes another novel. novel. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> as Balzac said. <laughs> but he is, it's true. He is the, that is, he's sort of flatline in that way. But he's smart enough, that's because he's so smart. He's smart enough to know that, you know, to him, you know, greatness is Ingmar Bergman and Fellini, you know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see how great he is. He feels he's always figured he's playing a role. That when he's that funny and and Woody Allen guy, he's playing a part. It's not really who he is. He says he put on glasses. He didn't even need them. He put them on to look smart. He was an athletic kid. He wasn't an intellectual. You know, mm. that's what he says about himself in interviews. Um, is it true? I don't know. You know, what's true? Well, what does that mean? You know, this is his interpretation of who he was. He he wasn't, he says he wasn't the schlub that he portrayed himself to be. So mm. I think that he, for many of us, Woody Allen fans, we believe we were watching Woody Allen in those movies. And that that's yeah, I've always was. felt that. I mean, the, the line between Alvy Singer and Woody Allen and Annie Hall is so blurred in my mind that I don't know how, I wouldn't know how to separate reality from fiction. But and I do feel like that when you see Woody Allen in interviews on Dick Cavett or the other in-person interviews, he does come across pretty much like he does when he's playing his character on screen. But is that him or is that shtick? Because by the it's time a, we it, we started seeing him in interviews, he was mm-hmm. a performer. He was right. He was mm-hmm. doing a character, and was it a character or was it him? That's the weird you thing. Mean. You don't you don't know. It's his persona. He says he says it's not him, but who? Maybe he's just saying that. Maybe that's part of his act. You don't know. Yeah, man, I, I love him. What's love great him about too. Annie Hall too is that by the time that 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 he talked uh, Diane Keaton into making Annie Hall with him, they had already split up, of course. But that they maintained he maintained a friendship with her, so that she did that for him and was able to open up her her life too, as much as he opened up his life, and to share that much with the audience. She was they, hugely inspiring to him. In fact, all he he credits all the women in his life, the major women, Mia Farrow and and and. Mm-hmm. Diane Keaton as being, you know, influencers and muses. Mm-hmm. Their relationship was long since over by the time they had Annie Hall. Um, mm-hmm. They've been, they just kept working together. I saw some funny footage of them filming Sleeper. He used to say that that she was. He used to say Diane Keaton was the funniest person he knew. And it was, it's, it's true that we see a funny Diane Keaton in Annie Hall, and she is funny in interviews, and her writing is hysterical. She just is a funny person. She always has been. But I never really got how funny he thought she was until I saw this this film footage of of them backstage and or you know on the set of Sleeper, and her trying to say the the Marlon Brando lines where she's trying to be Marlon where she's trying to you know do Marlon Brando as the Jewish mother as Marlon Brando or something like that, and uh, he cannot stop laughing, and it's so weird to see Woody Allen laughing. Where did you see that? I know. I, can't, I think it's a Woody Allen documentary. I think it's on there somewhere. I can't remember where exactly. Oh, I saw that it. one that was on PBS recently, probably. It might have been, but you I'm know, he's just—he's laughing at her, and he well, can't you know, stop. 
the scene in Annie Hall where they're trying to drop the lobster in the boiling water, that was all improv. That was actually rehearsal, and, and Gordon Willis was just chasing them around the kitchen with the camera. That's why it's the only scene in the movie that's handheld, is they weren't even prepared to be filming yet. That was all happening just in rehearsal before the actual scene was shot, but it turned out so naturalistic and so charming that they kept it in the movie. Hmm. But that was that was just all off the cuff. That wasn't that wasn't planned at all. That was that was just preparing to actually film the scene. But they used it anyway. The hmm. lobster scene I'm talking about. Yeah, and that's how she is. I mean, she's she yeah. is as you know from interviews. You see her. She's so funny. She just that's her personality. It's not even put on. Mm-hmm. So good at drama though too. In the same year that she was Annie Hall, she was in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is not a funny movie in, in the slightest. Um, I I tried to track that one down because I haven't seen it for I don't know twenty twenty years probably. I don't know that it's a great movie, but um, and I think it's controversial because it's kind of weird. But um, I don't think it's on. I couldn't find it anyway. Yeah, that was a weird, a very disturbing movie, probably, from what I know. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I know a little bit about it. Is Richard Gere in that? Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like she makes some really bad choices about guys to hook up with, right? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's kind of a weird, I mean, it's another movie driven by a woman, but it's kind of, there's a weird negativity to it that I think really put people off. I think it helped her win her Oscar that, that she did that that year, but I think that... Um According to Inside Oscar, anyway, people laughed at that movie. Like, they thought it was laughable. thought it was silly. Yeah. It was another one of those movies I remember my parents talking about, and I don't remember what the context (laughs) was, but it was a movie that got through to their consciousness for one reason or another. I think probably because it was controversial. My only thought watching that movie was Diane Keaton has great tits. Oh, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Perfectly shaped. And throughout the whole movie, you see that. She's like There's the only the one, one scene in Annie Hall where she's in her underwear and in a little skimpy undershirt type thing, but I do now, and I can picturing that, and I can see what you mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, you have an eye for that sort of thing. No, but um, she she definitely did, and and it's in. I think it's just so great that an actress, a, a list Hollywood actress, could do those same those two movies in one year, just like you're saying. It just blows my mind. You know, I mean, imagine any actress doing Mr. Goodbar today. Can't even think of any that would do that, that would go there. Maybe Rudy yeah, no. Mara might. Who? Probably, Rudy, probably Rudy. a movie like uh, Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct would never have been made without looking for Mr. Goodbar. Yeah, probably. I like thinking about how movies that are made, even if they don't, sometimes if they don't succeed on their own, they sometimes are the, are the roots or the precursors for movies that follow them that were able to be, that follow in their footsteps because they opened the door to certain subjects. Right. Well, there was, there was a lot about, a lot of talk about um, women, aggressive women having to always be the, you know, the bitch in movies. Mm-hmm. And I think starting with the 80s, I'm kind of still formulating my theories about this. I hope that I at some point can come to a conclusion. But um, the, uh, you know, women started getting punished in movies for sexuality. And it really did start in the 80s for promiscuity and sexuality. And um, so it's just always been a complicated relationship. And <clears throat> Mr. Goodbar, looking for Mr. Goodbar, I have to watch it again. But as I recall... Her sexual promiscuity leads to her demise, doesn't it? Right. I'm pretty sure she doesn't end happily in that movie. Another thing, even though we look at the 1970s as being really open-minded about sexuality, at the very beginning of the 70s, 
1969 and 1970, um, John Voight wins for, for Midnight Cowboy and Jane Fonda wins for Clute, both playing prostitutes. So, I mean, they might have been open-minded about sexuality, but it certainly didn't show sexuality as a, in a way that could be um, watched as a role model or something that you'd want to, once you're, once you're, want to want to a life that you want to lead yourself right and i don't think i think with the academy the the demographic was as it is now which was you know older white men and i think that you know the change didn't really come the way we would we would all like to see it but at the same time they couldn't ignore the strong uh women roles that that were being offered up that year they just couldn't ignore Mm -hmm. them Feminism was an idea that that might have been a more it might have been in magazines and in the media a lot more than it was actually accepted across the country and especially in middle America. I'm not sure how much feminism was really a thing outside of the coasts and they might have tried to make movies to to jump onto the idea of it and onto the trend. But when they found out that those movies weren't really selling the way that they thought that they might, they stopped making them. They stop. Yeah. They, they stop supporting it. It's funny that even though feminism and and gay rights and Stonewall riot and everything happened, all started around 1968, that it was uh, feminist movement that, that the movies were able to feel comfortable picking up on. But there were no gay movies in the 70s at all. No, and, and in fact, I don't know if it's because Damien Bona and Mason Wiley were gay that they point this out, but <clears throat> there were often uh, homophobic slurs that never get called out. For instance, um, Sylvester Stallone, when he, when he made Rocky, he said something like, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a, you know, a limp-wristed, you know, movie for, you know, limp-wristed men or something. This is a man's movie or something like that, like some horrible That's right. comedy. Even within the movies themselves, there were slurs that are shocking to me. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, but I don't even really like, I don't really appreciate too much in, in any hall when, when they're, when they're talking about the, the Truman Capote lookalike guy, you know, that's, that's, that gets under my skin a little bit. But that was that's Truman not, Capote I, though. That's, was it? That's really Truman no. Capote. Was it, I, don't, yeah. see, I don't remember that. I don't remember that it was. No, it Truman is. That's Capote. the joke when he says it's oh. the Truman Capote because they were friends. It's totally oh, Truman Capote. Never mind. You'll have to cut that out because that makes me look like an idiot. I don't remember that about the movie. No, but I but but I I think that you're on onto something there. I do. It's either Annie Hall or another Woody Allen movie where where um, you know gay men are made fun of in that way of like that. It's just it's just accepted. And I and I read something about this year too, and I can't. I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but it was something really blatant. Yeah, there were there just a was lot of things. The, that, was it the Richard Dreyfus Richard the Third thing? No, but that's that is oh one some comment sure. thing, made. isn't it? Yeah, it, that's for sure. Something that was definitely the the guy that director was portrayed as a total flamer. Mm-hmm. But but no, there was something in the Inside Oscar. I wish I could remember because I know as soon as we hang up, I'm going to remember it. But I mm-hmm. wanted to bring it up in in consort with the the Rocky thing. Right. Um, but it was just kind of accepted. You, you could say things like that in movies and and get and for a laugh that you wouldn't be able to get away with today because there would be such an outcry that it would be not. It's not. It's not. It's not cool to do that anymore. It's right. Not, it's right. not cool to mock gay people anymore, like it was in the 1970s. Just like it's not cool to mock about, black people anymore. You know, it's it's the mm-hmm. same kind of thing. But you see in these old movies that you see it pop up and you're just like, wow, it really hits you. You know. Mm-hmm. At least Star Wars had a gay character, um, C-3PO. 
<laughs> but I'm trying to think of, um, I wish I could remember. Maybe I'll just do a quick flip through and see if I can find it in my notes. But it was, it was pretty remarkable what, what was said. Um, anyway, you guys talk and I'll see if I can find it. What other uh, overlooked movies from the 19, from 1977 uh, do you like a lot, Greg, that we didn't talk about yet? Um, the only one I came up with was The Sorcerer, and I already talked about that one. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much... I, need to, I saw The Sorcerer, um, I guess, how even... I think I saw it about a year ago. I'm really looking forward to it coming out on, on Blu-ray because I know that when I saw it, it was uh, the old pan and scan yeah, version. Yeah, that's still the oh, only I, version that's available. Yeah. When is it coming on uh-huh. Blu-ray, do you know? Um, they've they've restored it and everything. I think they've got it color timed and 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 have it all. I think they're going to show it in Venice. I think it screened in Los Angeles or someplace. Maybe it screened recently, just a couple nights ago. And really? I'm so out yeah, of touch. Yeah, and, and so I think that it's going to be released in uh, sometime around the holidays this year on Blu-ray. Well, I hope it lives up to people's expectations. It's one of those movies that I think a lot of people haven't seen, and so it tends to be a little bit overhyped by the people who have as mm-hmm. as this forgotten gem. And then a lot of times there's a backlash against that, but hopefully it'll hold up. I remember seeing it, I, w- I think I saw it at the drive-in with my dad when I was little. Oh, yeah. And, and we were all thinking, you know, exactly the way it was marketed, which is w- with its name and, and its cast and pedigree, we thought it was something completely different than what it, was, what it turned out to be, which was this sort of tense thriller. And I remember it being a real nail-biter, which also the original was, too, of course, uh, Clouseau's mm-hmm. Wages of Fear. And that's a ballsy thing to take one of the classics of world cinema and remake an American, an English version of it. Absolutely. That, that takes a lot of guts to do that. I really respect reading it for, for, for even attempting it. Okay, so Pro- I, Probably not the best idea, but it worked. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it? I found so, it, but I, I might have misread it, actually. Um, it's It's a review of from Variety of Annie Hall, and it says, in a, in a decade largely devoted to male buddy-buddy films, brutal rape fantasies, and impersonal special effects extravaganza, uh, Woody Allen has almost single-handedly kept alive the idea of heterosexual romance in American films. I just don't know why he says heterosexual romance. It kind of made me think. Yeah, really? Yeah, it just kind of made me think. Well, I mean, I don't know. Am I overreacting? It sort of just read to me like, you know why is that? Why is that necessarily a good? Yeah, thing? it's a strange yeah, wording, I mean, isn't it? Yeah. As opposed to what it struck me as odd when I read it, I thought that's a weird way to put it. Why would yeah, you that, say that necessarily is really odd. to to make that distinction when there's no need for it? Yeah, as in heterosexual romance movies are dying <laughs> or something. Right. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, this is a sideline, kind of going back to something that we briefly touched on before, but it made me think of it again. Something that Sasha. And actually, the conversation that we were having about sort of the um, the sexual roles of women in the in the 70s, even which we think of as sort of a high time, it was still still sort of a, a, a negative time. But um, Ryan and I both kind of crapped on the turning point. But I think that's one of the strengths of that movie. And one of the reasons why people responded to it was that it did offer three pretty interesting female characters, one of them who chose the traditional marriage route and one of them who chose her career. But then there was the third one, which is her daughter, who is kind of having it both ways, having the romance and having the career and sort of having it all. And it was sort of ahead of its time in its own way. I mean, it's easy to... It's easy to laugh at now as a melodrama, and it is kind of corny, and it has the gauzy filtered lens, and it's it's a, a little insufferable. But it, there's something to it, I think, that that deserves to be pointed out in the context of of, of females in film. 
I should give it another chance. I haven't. I don't, can't think of the last time I saw it. But I, I don't mind. I don't have anything against melodrama per se. I, I, I. It sounds like something Douglas Sirk might have directed. In fact, you know, he, like it sounds like a Douglas Sirk movie. Or, it's, or, more, or, it's more TV movie than that. But yeah, oh, is it, yeah. It, it, that that's giving it a little too much credit. But um, it. Um, and one of the big movies that year was The Deep, and you know, it didn't do anything with Oscar, but it was such a huge image of a woman in a bathing suit like that was yeah. really and it was the time we're talking at the time of farah fawcett and the farah fawcett mm. poster and the deep and these really like you know busty beautiful women as your you know prime examples and images of women in media that was that was really what people were talking about but at the same time i noticed feminism poking out because look at carrie fisher in star wars look at that character what a great character that is mm-hmm. and terry gar um and the other that other blonde woman in close encounters you know mm-hmm. they're movies that are for men and and about men but the women in the in them are so great they're so well drawn that's Especially, something you don't see now I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's okay. I'm just saying that's something you really yeah. don't see now. Right. And especially in uh, in The Empire Strikes Back, Carrie Fisher really bears it all when she's uh, held hostage by Jabba the Hutt, right? She's almost like Barbarella. In that's that, uh, right. Return of the Jedi. Oh, is it Return of the Jedi? Okay, yeah. See, I don't even know this. I don't even. I really don't know the movie, the movies at all, except Star Wars and uh, Empire Strikes Back. But when talking about sexuality in movies, um, George Lucas had originally conceived the characters Han Solo and Princess Leia and Luke as Han was the older brother, Luke was the younger brother, and and Princess Leia was the bratty sister. Um, he when he realized that there was a sexual tension between Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher, he didn't like that, but he let it happen because he saw that it was going to be good for the movie. They actually had an affair. You know, they actually hooked up during that movie. No. Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. Lucas kind of turned his head and pretended like that wasn't happening. He didn't appreciate it because he was he's on record as saying, "I don't want any sex in my in my fairy tale." Oh my god. Yeah. But I mean, it makes makes it so much more interesting that there's a flirtation going on there between them, and you can also sense the resentment from Mark Hamill. That's really interesting. It comes across on screen. That's a lot more interesting than the than the sibling thing. Yeah, and she's such a just such a strong woman. I mean, she's such mm-hmm. a strong character. She's a princess, yes, but she's a you know, she's strong and she's a good fighter. You know, she's the one who busts out the first time. You know, when he tries to rescue, I'm Luke Skywalker, and I'm here to rescue. You know, she's the one who picks up the gun and starts shooting. She um, motivates she's, both of she's them the to only become one rebels. That, yeah. And she's the only one that stands up to Vader without pussing out all the time. Everybody right. else gets all quaky and weird, and she's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, she's great, and <laughs> I love that. You don't that. scare me, jerk. I wish they still made characters like that, and they don't. A couple other things happening in 1977. Roots was on TV. Remember Roots? Yep. I made a huge – it was a, made an incredible impact, and it's never been matched on television or in film, Roots. And that was they never tried to make anything else like that. I mean, it was a one of a kind thing that they the networks have never even tried to do ever again, right? Mm, it's just to talk about Black History. I mean, you know. To... Yeah. Also, Jabber Jabberwocky <laughs> Jabberwocky came out. I don't know if you remember that movie, but I love Jabberwocky. Yeah. Monty Python. As a Monty Python fan growing up, I couldn't avoid that one. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Um, also, Eraserhead by David Lynch was 1977. Um, I think His first movie, right? Yeah. 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 I think that's ignored by 
the Oscars, of course. It's a razor head. <laughs> oh, that was ignored by most imagine? people, and it yeah. only became kind of a cult thing afterwards. In fact, um, there's a theater on Santa Monica, the New Art, and it was it had like a repertory program, and also it had midnight movies. And Eraserhead kind of came and went in theaters, but then it played at midnights at the New Art like forever and became this thing. And that's kind of what launched sort of. The, so it was a cult, cult film that people the, went to see multiple times, maybe, or yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. Not not quite Rocky Horror, but similar. I sure wish he he still made movies. That guy, what a great director! Um, Talk about a strange thing to to think that Martin Scorsese made Taxi Driver one year and then follows up with New York, New York, a really um, art of Hollywood art, Hollywood musical that that relies so much on artifice. Mm-hmm. After making something so gritty and realistic as Taxi Driver. Yeah. Also Suspiria, Dario Argento, uh-huh. and Tentacles, starring John Huston, Shelley Winters, and Henry Fonda. Oh, wow. Tentacles, 1977. I want to go back to 1977 and go see Tentacles in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then Robert Altman made Three Women, which which I think was probably just nobody went to see Three Women. Probably it was so so. It's a difficult movie, and the pacing was so strange, and it was ignored by uh, by critics and awards groups alike. I think a lot of directors who who were were so big in the early seventies spun out of control by the mid seventies or late seventies. And I talked before about that, and Robert Altman was one of them. I think you have to add Robert Altman and David Lynch to that film school thing I said earlier. Like I do think mm-hmm. Robert Altman's you know spawned his whole his own generation of filmmakers that followed his style. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd put, I actually put Paul Thomas Anderson more in Robert Altman territory than in um, anybody else. Absolutely. I think they knew they were really good friends. I think that they, I think that Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson interviewed Robert Altman once, and I think he wrote the preface to, to one of Altman's biographies. So they, that's indication that they, there's a connection there. He, Altman was definitely one of his heroes. Mm-hmm. But it, Anderson's interesting because after Magnolia, which was his most ultimate-ish, he's, he's sort of turned away from that. He's, he doesn't have the big sprawling canvas of over, overlapping things quite the same as he did. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other story. Sorry. No, but I, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, Boogie Nights and, and Magnolia had that episodic quality of mm-hmm. a lot of inter, 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 interwoven threads and and open-ended stories for different different uh, subplots. Right. This was also a record-breaking year in Academy Globe history because Annie Hall um, became the only film to win Best Picture Oscar without having won the musical comedy um, category at the Globe. The goal, the Goodbye Girl won instead. Mm-hmm. Well, that's weird. It, it is weird. You have to go all the way back to 1977. That's why it, it seemed like a long shot that Silver Linings Playbook would win when it didn't win the Globe. It it, it was in Annie Hall territory then. It's it's a strange. It's an unusual category that the Globes have invented anyway, and, and it seems like sometimes they even have trouble finding five movies to fill those slots. But it's great that they do that because it gives movies a chance that the that the Oscars so often overlook because the Oscars scorn comedies so often. And the Globes have a pretty good record of choosing uh, comedy musicals. Yeah, and but you not know, that year. The Academy really loved Woody Allen. I, I think in some ways they. 
they were taunting him to see if he would show up by giving. I still think every time they gave him an Oscar, they were they were doing that to see if he would show up at their ceremony. For some they needed they needed him more than he needed them. Yeah, <laughs> he just kept doing good work, and they kept giving him awards. He didn't seem to care. Uh, he had to change his way of thinking later, though. Of course, when his business started to go on the decline, but. We were talking about um, gays earlier. 1977 was the year that Harvey Milk was elected to the San Francisco's Board of Supervisors. Mm, wow. Do you know uh, Annie Hall was the last movie that uh, Woody Allen made with Universal? He had a really good relationship with Universal. They, they were really supportive of him. Even when his movies didn't make a lot of movie, didn't make a lot of money, they, they, they stuck with him. And then two executives from Universal felt like they weren't being treated fairly by the Transamerica Corporation, who were the parent company of Universal at the time. And so the, the CEO and the head of production of Universal left to start Orion Pictures, their own independent company, and Woody Allen left with them. And so his next several movies were, were under the Orion banner. Hmm. And that was one of the things that brought Universal Pictures down because they lost their to- all their top executives and took so much talent with them. It probably goes without saying, I doesn't need repeating, that the top 20 films at the box office only featured one or two films targeted at kids. And now if you look through the last maybe five years, ten years, the top box offices of the year will almost always be films aimed at families and children. Um, This year it was just The Rescuers and um, Pete's Dragon, I suppose, although I don't really know what that is. Herbie. Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. And then you could put Star Wars in that category, I think, but it wasn't exclusively just for kids. Now you see, you know, animation and family movies pretty much um, swallowing up the box office, and right after that would be fanboy-centered movies, special mm-hmm. effects movies. Those are the two things that are dominating. But but it is surprising the shift from adult to children. And I just think the that that's understandable. Peace Dragon was a crap Disney movie at the low point of Disney's output. Just for Disney record. was the only studio that was really catering to children and, and teenagers at the time, and they didn't. They made a lot of crap movies because they because kids will go see anything that's marketed properly, and they really don't have a. They don't make a lot of. They don't make a lot of intellectual demands on a movie. So Disney knew its market really well, just like studios today know their market for teenagers. I yeah. think Star Wars um, was trying to fill that void a little bit, and and studios have gone overboard, realizing that that's such a ATM machine with kids, uh, with the teenage audience. Well, the, um, the now that I've raised a kid and I had to take this child to every movie that came out, and I watch all my friends take their children every weekend to the movies – um, you know, you see why it's why kid movies are so successful, you know, with parents trying to kind of give their children the best possible childhood as they do now to give them mm-hmm. the most perfect start to indulge them in every toy and every want, every desire. They take them to the movies and, and the movies, the children's movies that you see now, everything always works out for that one special child who saves mm-hmm. the day. You know, it's always mm-hmm. this one kid. It's like, um, you know. Whether it's Pixar or not, the story is always the same. You know, the scrappy little little underdog or whatever manages to save the day, and everybody rallies around them, and, you know, they're the heroes. So this is what kids are kind of being raised on, this idea that you are the hero in your own story. And well, that, now that stems from it, fairy tales, a, too. Fairy tales were always like that. Well, fairy tales way. for girls where you're going to get rescued. 
Yeah, that's true too. The shift Sorry. now is movies are about they were not about girls getting rescued anymore. They're about you know the little guy, the little you know outcast boy that nobody likes, you know saving the day. That's mm-hmm. Finding Nemo. That's Wall-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Ratatouille. That's any of them. Pick even anyone. if they're even if they're anime, even if they're animals or robots, they're still male. And they're still right. the little scrappy, you know, yeah. kid that saves the day every time. And I just wonder ultimately what that, how, you know, I know I see what fairy tales have done to women. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what that's doing to men. Well, that's the thing is that, you know, uh, it, now kid, the kid market is determining what movies get made. When I was a little kid in the 70s, my parents would go to the movies that they wanted to go to and they would throw us in the car along with them and we'd haul down to the drive-in and we would probably fall asleep before the second feature came on because we didn't care. But my parents watched whatever they wanted. The kids didn't determine what movies we went to. It was all about the parents and Mm. that has totally changed. The parent, child-parent dynamic has, has reversed in the last... 20 or 30 years. That's a great point. I hope that's what we, you were going to say a few minutes ago before we interrupted you, before I interrupted you, because that's a really good point. I hope that there wasn't another thing that you were going to say that was equally smart that I elbowed in and cut you off. Because <laughs> I, I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And what have what have these movies done to, to, to teenagers today? They've inf- infantilized people so that they remained teenagers into their 20s and 30s. Right. Because... People in their 20s and 30s will still flock to see Iron Man 3. I know. They never have to grow up now. Yeah. Well, it's like um, when you're a little kid, if you have the option of eating popcorn and ice cream for dinner every night, you will. It's bad for you. It's going to kill you, but that's what you're going to do. There has to be a certain point where a parent comes in and says, no, I'm going to take away your toys and make you eat your peas. You know, that's how that's that's what growing up is. And the movies haven't made kids do that and for forever since Star Wars. But Since I um, before that too, you know, I think even before that, even in the 1940s and 50s, the, what the movies that kids went to see in the 40s and 50s were probably what did they have to see besides westerns? And westerns were always uh, the cowboys and Indians things was always the good guy wins too, right? Mm-hmm. You rarely did you see any westerns that were were had a downer ending, in spite of the fact that the front the world of the frontier was really brutal and 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 repulsive in a lot of ways but you always had the roy rogers and trigger you know to save the day yeah i know that's always been the case but there's something different about the little the movies that are marketed to kids now and you probably have to have a kid and have to sit through all these fucking movies to get it that or not get it but see Mm. the pattern how it's always the same story Always. Especially when you have to see so many of them, right? Because you have to see them all. And you can just write out exactly how they're going to end. And they always mm-hmm. end the same way. And the audience eats them up, you know? Because there are time. good ones. There are good ones. And Pixar is really good about, about making high-quality movies for the, the family that that, uh, that 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 don't only cater to children, but, but put enough things in there so that adult, adults can find satisfaction, too. But every, in Ratatouille and Finding Nemo and, right. and Brave movies But every like little that. kid going in, every little boy going in there and seeing, and then the girls are the helpmates. And, you know, helping the little boy achieve his dream. Um, they're all going in there and they're identifying with this character and they're being conditioned to think that, you know, they're a special snowflake. <laughs> you know, by... And I think that when they grow up, they're going to run into problems when they realize that bothers that you true. because you're a responsible parent. But I think that there are probably a <laughs> lot of parents across America who probably want to ingrain those 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 
uh, standards in their children. They probably like that idea and they want to teach their children those things, which is the parents' fault. But I think it leads to people thinking, you know, bad things and of entitlement. And it makes, makes you know, a lot of young men grow up feeling really frustrated and inadequate because it's not happening to them. And they become serial killers and mass shooters. Maybe, maybe. And porn doesn't do any favors either. Porn, you know, people grow out of Pixar right into porn and it teaches you the same <laughs> wrong things. <laughs> I prefer porn to the to the fantasy of childhood that, you know. Right. Because... At least I'm old enough now to be able to distinguish between reality and fantasy. I can look at porn and know that that porn is not real. I don't expect my life to play out that way. I just wish that they had pubic hair. That's all. <laughs> I mean, it's such a godsend whenever you find it. It's, so it's like, God, God, bring back the bush, you know. Or I, I'm not even saying the big hairy bush, just some hair, you know. Just the runway. The landing strip, yeah. <laughs> landing, landing strip, right. Out of, I'm not sure what the what it was called because I'm not into it. <laughs> talking about sci-fi, though, talking about the fact that two extraordinary science fiction movies came out in 1977, I think that's worth mentioning, considering the fact that in 1969, there was such an, in 1968, I guess, such an astonishing thing happened with 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then it took nine years for, for Hollywood to try to do anything similar. Is it just because they didn't know how or because the, the special effects were not not there yet and are, are so... So nobody really understood how to make a movie like that. There were science fiction movies in the 70s, but they were they were more earthbound, you know, like Westworld and Soylent Green and, I don't know, Stepford Wives. And movies like that were sci-fi, but they weren't special effects sci-fi. Do you think, you think people are going to listen to us and go, what they shut up about the 70s? Shit, no. I, I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, go, we haven't gone on for a long time, but I think I don't. I don't know how. <laughs> I think we spent a lot of time on Soderbergh, and I was so argumentative at the beginning of the of the podcast. I felt like that I needed to. I wanted. I, I'm glad we've had this time, so I've able. I've been able to calm down and get you a grip didn't. on myself. You were, I don't think you were argumentative at all, Ryan. I was the one who was okay. argumentative. Anybody who doesn't want to listen about the 70s is not my audience, and they can they can go screw. <laughs> you can split you can split this up into two podcasts again, so that people can listen to the first one if they want more. Then they know where to find it. They can they can yeah. get another dose. They can go back for a second helping. Right, right. I'll try to I'll try to slim it down a little bit. Um, I know there were parts that I can cut out of the early, you know. No way. Every word that came out of my mouth was gold. I've been shitting gold all night long. And if you cut out a single syllable of what I said, I'm going to be super no, I'm not even I'm talking about the shit I was saying that oh. I cut out. I was just, I I was just being a smart ass. I will say that I, I think that uh, 2001 was not a really big box office hit. It kind of became a cult hit afterwards. But at the time, it was kind of even critics were a little standoffish to it, I think. Yeah, so you're I think, probably I think right maybe the that. lesson yeah. was that adult science fiction is just not... Not, Not what the money studios maker. wanted to take a risk on, because people weren't going to sh- going to go uh, go show up to watch a three hour movie where with no action like like two thousand one. Yeah, nobody really wanted to try to reproduce two thousand one. I guess Star Wars. The only thing that replicated uh, was the special effects, the the sophistication of the of the special effects, and maybe that wasn't available before the late seventies on a on a to most people, to most filmmakers, because you, if you try to make a science fiction movie and the special effects aren't there and you've just got a, a silly flying saucer cartoon floating in the air, <laughs> it, it, it's ridiculous. It's not suspenseful. It's not, it, people can't take it seriously. And those are the science fiction movies that Hollywood made in the 1950s and 60s, right? But once the special effects capabilities became available in the late 70s, 
you had we have so many great science fiction movies in, in, to follow. You know, Blade Runner and Alien. I don't know. To a point, I think audience sophistication has sort of tracked the sophistication of the of the special effects. So I think what we were seeing in the fifties and sixties seems cheesy to us looking back, but I think in the mm. moment it didn't necessarily. Maybe not, not quite as much as it does. That. Yeah, I look back at the original War of the Worlds that was made in the 1950s, probably, right, 1955 or something. Those are some pretty extraordinary special effects, and that original War of the Worlds probably scared the shit out of people back then. And, and if you look at Star Wars, especially the un, the unscrewed with versions of them, some of the effects on those are pretty creaky looking today. And mm. I have to say that I there's a part of me, maybe because I grew up on Star Wars or whatever, that, that gets really – and I know, Ryan, you too. I mean – we like sitting down and watching these gigantic $100 million effects movies when they're really good effects and they're not shitty like Michael Bay. They don't make you feel like a fool for sitting through them. But mm-hmm. like Pacific Rim, <laughs> that movie looks so good. Like not it good does, as in it's yeah. a great art movie, but wow, you know, the special hey, effects. I went to see Oblivion and I really enjoyed myself at Oblivion. I know Oblivion has been attacked by the Twitter crowd a lot because it 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 uh pays homage or it steals it lifts so much from so many other movies that it's almost a pastiche but i really liked oblivion just because it's visually spectacular i hope that my hope is that um we can have room for all of them and that the, that the academy that the oscars and that the work that we do hopefully contributes some to preserving movies that like we just saw last year that opened and that made a hundred million dollars. Can, can there be room for both? Can Soderbergh still find backing for projects Mm -hmm. that he thinks are worthy without having to go through and jump through the hoops? Is there a way? I I just, I, I don't know why he's so discouraged. I really think that he's probably disappointed in the, in the critical reception and also the box office reception that some of the movies that he's made recently, like, like side effects and like haywire and like contagion that probably didn't get as much attention as he wished they, they, they did considering the amount of effort he put into them. That's got to be discouraging, but I really hope that he doesn't give up because he should think that the independent smaller films are really vibrant these days and he should be encouraged by the fact that beast of the southern wild got an oscar nomination yeah it didn't make a dime all right exactly i mean is, how is that like are studios even going to care that it didn't make a dime mm-hmm. that's the thing that i think he worries about this this stratification that 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 the movies that are successful are just getting bigger and bigger and there are fewer and fewer of them and then there's a million movies that cost $15 and four people see them on YouTube. You know, that's sort of the, the future that he's, that he's envisioning. And that's not mm-hmm. a very good future. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if, there, if there's great movies and nobody's seeing them, does it really matter? That's such a good point. That's true. It could turn into just four people on you. No, or maybe even a million people on YouTube, but not making yeah, any money. Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, I, I see the point, but I really do think that I, I'm okay with a niche audience as long as 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 long as people can still find a way to raise um, five million dollars and make that money back on 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 iTunes or VOD. You know, I think that that's I think that's a viable business model for a certain level of filmmaker. I I I I, would, I would, when he talks about giving Shane Carruth. Um, $100 million, I would, I'm would. i kind of wary of that. I don't know what kind of movie Shane Ruth is going to make for, for $100 million. He's better off with less money. I think so, too. I mean, I, I, Upstream Color is an, is an amazing little movie, but it's not, it's not ever going to be a blockbuster film. People, It's just too difficult for 
for most people. There's some directors who really thrive with a, with more money, and some that um, that are much better when when you pull in the reins. Orson Welles was somebody who who functioned better without a lot of money, where he, he was more he was forced to be inventive. Um, Spielberg, I would say too. Mm-hmm. I put him in that category. There's some. I just think that with some directors, when, when, when you start throwing money at them, they, they stop being critical in, in yeah. their thinking. When, when, you can, when you can spend your way out of a problem instead of thinking your way out of a problem, it's a bad thing. But at the same time, the more expensive a movie gets, the more fearful the people who are making the decisions get and the mo- less chances they're willing to take. Absolutely. The, 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 more, the less likely that something is interesting is going to come out of that. It still happens. I mean, you, you can give a genius a lot of money and he's going to do something great with it, but the, all the forces work against that. You've been listening to episode 29 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music today was Layla by Eric Clapton. And the ending of Annie Hall for your listening pleasure. Thanks for listening.